this is a very surreal experience for me because it's, I think, seven or eight years ago that I last saw this film, and so it's a stranger to me. Uh, I'm listening immediately to a sound landscape, which is a, one of the most interesting parts of this movie is the way that the opening evolved. We had no money for our title sequence, and we were reduced at the very last minute to trying to think of some way of pulling together certain ideas that we wanted to promote in the film, and not least the notion that you understand a film very quickly and you understand the language, or you have to indicate to an audience a sort of language that you're going to use and a way of viewing the film. And because this film has an extremely fragile and brittle narrative, if it has any narrative, um, it's a more of a poetic collision of events, and that's partly due to the nature of the novel that I adapted, Michael's novel. And... I remembered that towards the end of the shooting in Cinecittà in Rome, I'd done a roll of B-camera uh, while we were doing some effect shots in the main stage at Cinecittà. And, uh, I'd photographed a painter making an image of a cave drawing that Kristen Scott Thomas's character, Catherine, was uh, going to be painting at a certain point. So it was an insert shot, but it was a very beautiful moment because the artist, a Roman artist, uh, had such a fantastic delicacy and, and it, it also seemed clear to me that the ground of the painting had a colour tonality which made it feel something like the desert and in despair Walter Murch and I, when we were thinking about how to open the film, went back and examined the footage and remembered that we had this insert shot of the body being painted and it gave us an idea that we could use it to begin a series of transformations to to say that this film was going to be fluid in the way that it expressed itself that an image could be one thing and then something else that it would also be a film which would move from the intricacies and intimacies of a body to landscape and that, that one of the particular characteristics of film is that its syntax enables you to move shot by shot from close-up to wide shot, from the details of a woman's neck to the landscape of the Sahara. And so we started to play with the idea of indicating at the beginning of the film using sound that we were in the desert, but actually we were looking at a piece of paper and then painting a character that would eventually become the shadow of a biplane. And immediately, too, because I remember when I first scouted in the Sahara, I'd noticed that the desert scene from above looks like sleeping bodies, bodies, and it, it, again, this sort of erotic nature of the film seemed present in this landscape. And now, now we're looking at uh, the first glimpse of Kristen Scott Thomas and Ray Fiennes as they fly over the Sahara, and that top shot was done on the stage at Chinichita, and then we were out here in the desert in Tunisia and Marta Sebastian is singing this voice, which is also a collision of a classical score and a Hungarian folk singer. And again, uh, trying from the very beginning of the movie to suggest that there will be an enormous fluidity between the various elements of the film, that what you hear is not necessarily what you're seeing and what you see is not necessarily connected to what you're hearing. And, those German soldiers were tourists roped in at the very last minute to help us because we didn't have enough extras or Caucasian extras in the desert. And now we cut to a, a train scene 
This was actually a stationary train in a terminal in Rome, and there is the wonderful Julia Binoche, who uh, was the first person I ever approached to be involved in this film. Um, I've been an enormous fan of her since Unbearable and it's a being, and Saul Zanz, the producer, had worked with her previously, so I sent her the novel before I'd written a word of the adaptation and just said I wanted her to be in it. And it meant an enormous wrangling of the material because in the book, Hannah is Canadian and Juliette obviously is French. And so um, with one of the many uh, um, alterations to that fantastic book, I moved Hannah to Montreal and made her into a French-Canadian nurse, which I think was been a fair, one of the more painless uh, um, slights of hand that we achieved in the film. I heard Marta Sebastian, the singer, for the first time when I was working on the screenplay because I, I like to write surrounding myself, immersing myself in some way in the noise of a particular period that I'm investigating. And I did a huge amount of research when I was creating uh, the screenplay of The English Patient. And, and every day that I read, I also listened, and I found this fantastic band, Musikash, Hungarian, Transylvanian music that they play. And um, I'd always wanted that voice to be in the film. And Walter Murch, who's my editor, and or I'm his director, and uh, has been an enormous mentor to me. This was our first collaboration, and it was he who first experimented with joining these two sounds together, Gabriel Yared's score with Marta's voice. And we did it in a early cut as a sort of notion, and, and then passed it back to Gabriel. And eventually, we did plat these sounds together. We've just moved from Africa to Europe. We're now in northern Italy, and this is Stuart Craig's fantastic um, design tapestry in the movie. He created a fantastic landscape for us to work in and um, built us this, this army hospital. Is there anybody from Part of just an incredible... I mean, I, I felt that in this movie with John Seal, Walter Murch, Anne Roth... Stuart, Gabrielle, that I started to put together a team of people who were better than me in every possible respect and were going to dignify any idea that I had and, and also push me towards the scale that the film required to think as broadly and as ambitiously as I can. And that's Saul Zanz's particular alchemy, I think, is that he's a fantastic enabler and he, he encouraged me from the get-go to work with the very best people I could find and not to sell myself short and also to encourage me to believe I could make uh, a film that would be important and, and, and valuable and, and, and persuaded me that I wasn't a miniaturist because obviously the work I'd done prior to this had been incredibly small. I was a playwright turned screenwriter turned um, rather unconvinced and perhaps unconvincing filmmaker and this was the first time where I took myself seriously, I suppose, as somebody who might have a visual uh, muscle that would match my sense of being a dramatist. This fantastic guy, a uh, Tunisian storyteller that I found, with the help of Peter Markham, who, who is another collaborator of mine who did some second unit shooting on this film. He was my assistant director on Trillium Addy Deeply and has been a great friend. And, 
He went ahead of me to Tunisia and found a whole group of actors, and I wanted to make sure that every time we featured somebody in this movie or in any movie I've made, that, that we've got something sort of extraordinary, broadening the, pushing the edge of the film and insisting on the importance of everybody who, who turns up. And this mixture of work from Stuart and the props department creating this medicine man who's a very pungent part of the novel and something that stayed in my head when I was doing the adaptation. And this moment where you really feel the degree of damage that's been done to Rafe, Rafe's character, Almoshi. Um, again, we're, we're in this place where the film just is drifting from place to place and trying to give you an idea of, of the map that we'll be pursuing. We've been in the war, we've been pre-war, we've been in the desert now, we're back in Italy again. This is a particularly painful moment uh, which I'm now feeling a pain in my ankle because in the middle of this scene I fell over and broke my ankle, um, which I can say very quickly, but I can't begin to uh, uh, rehearse the damage it did to me during the making of this film because it meant for the rest of the movie it was five months of shooting. I was in a plaster cast and a plaster cast in the desert, and my I also tore my ligaments and. I, um, so this, I can't even look at this scene without <laughs> wincing. Um, I stepped backwards. I was talking to Rafe in the middle of a take, and I stepped backwards, and the sound department had very carefully covered up the walkway to stop there being any damage to uh, noise damage with heavy boots clonking along this concrete, but it covered up a whole multitude of crevices, and I put my foot in it, one of these crevices, and then kept walking backwards, and my ankle stayed where it was. You were married then? I think so. Uh, I'm not talking about performance very much here. I mean, obviously, the this is an amazing gift, this work from Rafe here, an actor I didn't really know until we started working on this film, and it, he brought such um, intensity and integrity to the whole business of making this film. He's somebody who will not be... Um, moved off the dime of of his determination to make every moment count and to invest this character with dimension and there's something they actually Rafe and Juliette had worked before together and were friends uh, I didn't know either of them before we started the film but it was an incredible part of uh, um, the making of this film the relationship they had and friendship and um, this this scene has an uh, 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 evokes some particular memory, which was at the end of three days of shooting with this team of actors and with a lot of uh, army American army volunteers. Uh, they came up to me at the end of the three days of shooting and asked me if I was involved as one of the main directors on the film, which I think gives you some account of my of my. Um, obvious authoritative position because they couldn't even work out who was directing the movie at that point. Uh, the, 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 the organization of a scene like this we're shooting in Tuscany at the moment was sort of magical to me, a very complicated scene uh, and created really a, a lot with the help of Alessandro von Norman, who was the line producer on the film. Now dead, uh, a great father figure to me, a magnificent man who was Fellini's production manager, line producer, was the sort of prince of Italian filmmaking, was in La Dolce Vita, uh, just a magnificent human being, and he made this whole project seem much easier than it had any right to be, and um, enormously important, charismatic 
man. Sound plays an enormous role in this film, and Walter and I both are obsessed with how sound features in the film. You hear these funny buzzing uh, um, mind detectors, and and uh, we we try to listen to the film without pictures, so that we were just as the film you hope will stand up without the support of of a sound world, so I'd like to believe that the film would stand up without the support of an image world, and so we always try and create as much narrative and atmosphere as we can with sound, and this is Naveen Andrews, who, and Kevin Waitley. Kevin is a great old friend of mine. I started writing for television on Inspector Morse, uh, and, and uh, he and I became great friends during that particular episode in my life, and I wanted him to play a role in this film, and he very kindly showed up and helped for a couple of weeks and was a great, generous presence to us. Naveen was an actor had been in one of my plays when he was at drama school, and I'd met him then, and a really substantial performance from him and um, in quite an early outing into film. He'd been in Bud of Suburbia, I think, and a couple of other things, but he was essentially a young actor in pretty heavyweight, Territory. I mean, Juliet is, takes no prisoners. She's a really major um, force, life force for all of us, and um, very clear about who she is and the level of work that she wants to achieve. And and uh, it was sort of startlingly good to be around, but but also a challenge to all of us. And um, I think Naveen really created a a voice in the film, Hard, harder. For him, because the the nature of the adaptation of this book, which is you know, one of the great books, I think, of the last 40 or 50 years, and in my opinion, by one of the most important novelists. Uh, I, I love this book so much, and when I started the adaptation, I realized that there was absolutely no way that I could honor all the elements of it. And uh, the story of Kip, the Sikh sapper in the film, in the, in the novel, was one that just couldn't finally make its way in its full form into the film. There were too many narratives and threads to hold on to, and one of the casualties was a geographical one. I couldn't um, get the film to work in England, even though a large part of the novel is set in England. I wrote, you know, probably 40 or 50 pages of a screenplay set in England, and draft after draft after draft, those pages began to fall out until finally we, we realized that the hinge of the film would be between the English patient and the desert, Count Armashi and Catherine Clifton, and then the story of this monastery and Hannah's role in it and the relationship between Rafe and her here, this beautiful monastery in Pienza. Um, oh, gosh, a lot of nostalgia flooding back here. Um, this incredible, not derelict, but, but certainly now no longer functional monastery that had been turned into a sort of retreat for artists who had this in incredible magic to it when we arrived there and this is Stuart's fantastic design where we suddenly are on a set built in the in, in the gardens of the monastery to create the sort of sense of damage um, that the war has caused and but this is this is a, um, a piece of building on location which was a real lesson to me that that um, the in film you create everything and it doesn't matter where you are or um, every part of this the geography in this film is so slightly wrong. You know, we go to cathedrals, which are meant to be in Arezzo, and they're um, in Montepulciano. We go to interiors that should be the Sahara, which are built on the 
Sands in Venice uh, on the Lido. Um, the only difficulty with this fantastic monastery was that there was no distant vista of it. Although you see, we make a little attempt to get it in the background there between the, um, the lorry and the camouflage net. That's actually a piece of of, uh, of set, trying to just keep us in relation to, to the monastery. But Stuart Craig always mourned the fact that we didn't go to a second or third location to create an exterior for the monastery because it really had no vantage point. It's, it's um, slightly buried in the hills... Uh, of Florence, and um, but just this was a, 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 an ambitious and large-scale project with an extremely uh, limited budget, and so it was like making a very long independent movie, a low-budget movie. It just happened; it took us a long time to collect it. So the money we spent, what money we spent, I think it was twenty-seven or twenty-eight million dollars, was was spent traveling and sh and shooting, and not on anything else. It was it was. Uh, um, poor cinema in the proper sense that we'd made do and used our money to get everything we could onto the screen. We've popped uh, intermittently here between the real monastery and now we're on the set in Cinecittà in Rome. Fantastic place to work, a fantastic studio I've gone back to several times subsequently. Um, and so, you know, we're moving from being in... Tuscany when we look out of the window back into the studio and that fantastic ability of film to persuade you, I hope at least in the sun we do persuade you that we're in a place where in fact often you're in fragments of, of um, set, of location of uh, design on location but everything is created and, and that gives you this enormous ability to make everything coherent because rather than accepting the world you try and create a world and a world whose colour and values all contribute to the same single idea. One of the hardest things when you're making a movie like this is to try and have everybody making the same film. And uh, if you're creating it, it's much easier because you're not having to also persuade nature to cooperate um, or, or the architecture to cooperate completely. And this is a film, really, which is essentially a, a, a collective creation. What about your own book? This book, which is now in my study, the Herodotus, was the subject of enormous debate. How to create this? In a sense, this is a the book of the film, and everything that the way this book works—it's fragments of ideas, it's pictures, it's elements—were the the lexicon for the whole film. We 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 saw it as a sort of paradigm. Everything that was in the book would also tell us how the film would work. And I'd written a series called The Storyteller for NBC and Jim Henson's company, who, by the way, contributed to Rafe's prosthetic look. They designed that for me. In The Storyteller, essentially, we tried to find some format whereby there was a narrator, and through what the narrator said, we went from time to time we went from location to location using the device of of a single person recounting a story and from that story going off into some of the scenes that he described and I realized subsequently that what I'd done here was to create a kind of more grown-up storyteller so this book you know which is rather like the beginning of Pinocchio when Jiminy Cricket opens it and off we go into the story this is the sort of Rafe finds Jiminy Cricket moment because he knocks the book over and in some ways we get down to the nitty-gritty of 
who this mysterious person is because it's all there in this Herodotus book. And Herodotus had a sort of his day in court after this, lots of reprints, lots of new editions. And here we go, and we've already seen a couple of the key clues of the film, a Christmas cracker, photographs, maps, and drawings. This was um, another Tunisian storyteller, fantastic man. And this tiny episode here was originally an endlessly long scene, which I was very proud of, uh, which was a story about how to capture an ostrich. <laughs> which went on and on and has a certain um, irony because there was a whole sequence with a real ostrich that was generated by this by this, uh, this, this scene, which involved Catherine Clifton as well. But here it's reduced to um, just a couple of drawings and some looping, some post-sync sound. Because we ended up with a four-and-a-half or four-and-three-quarter-hour cut and notwithstanding the fact that a lot of people thought this film was much too long in its final version, it was a lot longer than when I started. And so there are an enormous number of compressions and conflations. And this post-sync world, which I'm currently in on Cold Mountain as I'm sitting here commentating on this movie, is, is a great opportunity. It's like a sort of big Band-Aid box. You can cover up all of the joins and rewrite sequences to try and make sense of what the film is, you know, the difference between what you thought the film would be and the film that you've made, which is a, a, often a big journey because, as Walter says to me, stop telling me what you thought the film is and look at what you brought back to me. And I brought back a particular film and it involved, as I said, a great deal of surgery and amputation. And so the, the post-sync world where you rewrite and revoice certain sections can help you uh, um, cover up um, some of the the grazes and bruises that you've that you've created. Here's Kristen Scott Thomas, who I think is magnificent in this film. Um, immediately into this strange, taut uh, arch relationship that she established with Rafe, brittle and uh, so English, both both of them. Platonic love, filial love. Quite different things. And Colin Firth. The sort of principal ideas of the film are getting expounded here. Uh, in this scene, which was um, this this scene is is a perfect example of looping. It was originally about something else, and what I did was because we're often in a long shot, I completely rewrote the entire scene subsequently. When you see the characters talking on screen, then they're saying what I originally wrote. When they're off camera, every single thing is different. Uh, uh, it was a scene about another character in another situation, which and I just borrowed the images and rewrote the detail of the scene to fix a big hole that we'd made. We took out maybe 20 minutes of the movie and uh, used that scene to put it together. Gabrielle Yared's music in this film is, is, I think, probably the principal reason why some people found things to love, because it... it it really is one of the great film scores, I think, in my opinion. It, it, and, and I know it obviously intimately because I was there through every note and um, part of its creation, but it just so collects uh, a spirit of the film and, and a sort of emotional lava that the film was hinting at, uh, irrespective of the complexity of the storytelling and the surfaces. It's uh, really a meditation on various types of love. You know, somebody once said that 
Eskimos have 50 words for snow, we should have 50 for love. Well, the movie tries to examine some of those 50 types of love, and Gabriel's music, which comes, I think, from his own odd chemistry, which contains elements of uh, the desert and of, of um, the East. He's, he's from the Lebanon, but was raised in France and um, has a classical training and has a, also spent time in Latin America, has this strange cocktail of, of influences, and they worked in this film perfectly to, because the, the, the film's sound reaches out both to the desert and to Europe, and so does his music, and it has this fantastic, um, passionate certainty that I think was like a handhold for the audience. They knew they were allowed to feel things in a particular way, even if they didn't often understand what it was that was was arguing for that feeling. This, uh, I've always, I mean, my background is Italian, and I've always loved the idea of the kind of emotional sensibility which exists in the Italian neorealist cinema and the subsequent cinema, where it's possible to go from laughter to tears and not to be ashamed of either, and also to have those tears and laughter come much closer together than they might do in a sort of more northern sensibility. And so I hope that there's, there's as much wit as there is agony in the film, and that's a very hard thing for, for other people working in the movie to, to join up for, and, and Gabriel certainly just, just glued the whole movie together, not necessarily always by telling you what you should feel, but by indicating that there was a level of feeling below some of the surface um, transitions. And, 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 and transition is everything in this movie. Here, we're in the sort of montage of stories of the desert of, of um, events in the, uh, in the monastery. And it, if you were to take one sequence and examine it, you'll, you'll see that there are about 10 or 15 things going on here in terms of promoting the narrative and introducing characters. This wonderful group of actors, the International Sand Club, but you see that we were trying to pull the relationship between this book and elements in the book and this determination of the English patient to understand his past with the past itself. And so as Juliet reads, it takes us back to Kristen's recounting of the same story. Candelis tells Gyges that the Queen has the same practice every night. She takes off her clothes and puts them on the chair by the door to her room. I think in many ways in this movie, everybody sort of announced what, what they were interested in doing in the movies, the, the people who participated, and, and Kristen, I think, suddenly emerged as a real leading lady and wanted this part very, very badly. She wrote me a great letter which said, I am Kay in your film, which was a, an echo of a line in the novel. And she comes from a background where her, she's had two fathers, her real father and stepfather, both of whom were killed in plane accidents. Um, she comes from Dorset, which somehow gets a mention in this movie. It's where I wrote the screenplay. And uh, she had a real connection to this woman and knew it, I think, sometime before I did, and I kept meeting other actors and actresses and then coming back and thinking that she wasn't necessarily the right person, but she was the only person who ever stayed on any list that I had, and 
thank God that she knew she was right because I, I, it's hard to imagine this movie without her. Colin was somebody I'd worked with many times before, or several times before, in theatre and radio, and was a great fan of his. And they were a marvellous couple together. He has this um, somehow a, from enormous fragility as an actor, and I wanted to create in the husband this sort of dialectic where where you had every sympathy for what is essentially an adulterous relationship between Rafe and Kristen, but there was an insistence that there was somebody else involved who had a sensibility and who was damaged, and so that the pleasure in the film is always modulated by the pain, and, and as we'll see later, that I could never quite resist whenever it looked like things were getting too easy between this couple, reminding myself and therefore the audience that it, their, their, um, their love was at the, expen at the expense of somebody else's... Um, heart. These transitions obsessed us on the film. It seemed to me that the book's beauty was that it moved so seamlessly from place to place and time to time. And you know, film is a bit more lugubrious as a medium. Medium. It's very hard to to deal with quite simple things which exist in a novel. You know, if you say in a novel, every day it rained. That's every day it rained. Four words, five words. Um, in a film, to get that continuous present, as it were, is, is almost impossible without you know quite complex use of the syntax. But on the other hand, its ability to to move is its most beautiful characteristic. The fact that if we cut from this close-up of Juliet now to the desert, we the, the the mind's eye has been taught to make a connection between those images, just as it makes connections between close-ups um, and and eye lines and um, landscapes, and it can just the 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 viewer's eye is so sophisticated in how it puts information together, and we really exploited that sophistication in the way that the movie moves between period and tense. And that was, I think, finally, the, the film, the thing we're most proud of in the film was that it did manage to, to journey so far and through so many different periods without, I hope, finally uh, um, completely befuddling its audience. Willem Dafoe, great actor and great man, brought a very different acting characteristics and style to the film. Really the one American actor with a significant role in the film and brought brought a different sensibility to us, although the fact that he's a theatre actor first and foremost uh, was enormously important to me because the way that I work with actors and the way that I'd been taught to work with actors was through the theatre. And uh, it, it's harder always if you work with actors whose experience is entirely on film because rehearsal and preparation are often very different for them and neither better or worse it's just a very different take and and i um wanted to prepare this film a particular way we rehearse for some time and rafe is very much from the theater and and wants to prepare and explore the character beforehand and wants to to know a great deal about what he's going to do before he does it some American cinema actors prefer to be finding the film as they go along, and often that makes for an, an enormously impressive performance, but it's quite hard, nevertheless, for other people to know quite what they're working with. Here, we had a real coherence in the performances, I think, and that comes uh, from the generosity of the actors involved and also from the preparation that we did together. He's Canadian. Why are people always so happy when they collide with someone from the same place? 
What happened in Montreal when you passed the Part of this film is connected with connections that people make in times of war or in times of, of uh, remote geographies where the fact that you fetch up in the same place gives you this entirely specious camaraderie which can become, I suppose, more real than genuine camaraderie. And because it's a film which explores the notion of boundaries and territories and nationality and who belongs to whom and whether it's you know, better to betray your country or your friend. I was intrigued to have Amashi articulate this idea. It's also a great failing of mine. I come from the Isle of Wight, and wherever I go in the world, if I meet somebody from the island, I'm always overjoyed to see them, whether I know anything about them or not, or like them or not, and I'm often teased for my um, rather stupid allegiance. But nevertheless, it's true of all of us, I think, that we are tribal. And even though the film is constantly trying to advocate the dangers of tribalism, then reality is that when it comes down to it, however, however small the world becomes, the reality is that we, we just choose to make smaller and smaller connections. So the, 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 even though the film is arguing and advocating a, a, a boundary-free, nation-free, nationalism-free uh, um, state of mind, it has to acknowledge, too, that we are all prisoners to, to tribalism. Caravaggio. <laughs> Hannah thinks you invented your name. And you've forgotten yours. I said that no one would ever invent such a preposterous name. And I said you can forget everything. We're just establishing something there with a cut back to Juliette Binoche, which becomes very significant later. It's trying to establish a geography between her room and Armashi's, and this becomes late, uh, important later for something we did in the film at the end, which was an in, a complete cheat, but uh, it was one of those revelations of post-production, and, and that little shot there connecting her her room with Armashi's becomes enormously significant later. They don't see foreign women. This scene in the souk, the carpet scene where um, Amashi um, begins this sort of policy of brutalism with Catherine, which is a way, his way of trying to manage a burgeoning uh, desire for her. He can't. There's something very destructive about this character, and the more he feels, the more cruel he seems to become to himself and to others. Correct price for this. It, it was a, a strange scene because. It was one of my first real lessons about preparation, which is that uh, I'd planned this scene very carefully with Stuart Craig because we were creating a souk in a very small area in Tunis, and a lot of it's to do with a big mirror at the end which sort of doubles up the length and size of, uh, of the souk, and it depended on the particular choreography of the staging, and I'd planned it and worked it out and drawn it prior to really sharing it with Rafe, and then when we started rehearsing, Rafe took off in the completely opposite direction to the one that we designed. And it left me in that curious thing place where either you, um, you go along with the plan you had before the day's work or you understand that actually the process of the film is one that has to be more organic, and notwithstanding the irritation of my great colleague Stuart and John Seale who'd lit and prepared for one way we actually ended up um, turning around and shooting the other way and I still you know in the end it's neither here nor there but it was just a lesson of making sure that when you're collabor collaborating and preparing with your production team you also collaborate and prepare with your actors and and and, and allow them to a certain amount of freedom because you, the film is such a 
controlled activity, particularly a big film and a film of scale where your preparation can be a year prior to turning over, actually, from shooting, the danger is that the, the actors get reduced to sort of mechanical pieces in your big game that you're playing. And and I've seen as, as each film has gone by that given how much preparation I've done, I've written, I've scouted, I've... I've uh, worked with the costume department with Anne, wonderful Anne Roth. I've worked with the composer, uh, and I've taken people all all over the globe to shoot. You don't need to get to be any more controlling than that. And actually, when it comes down to it, if you've made the words for people to say and you've created the the actions, after that, let go a little bit. And and um, the the more empowering that you can do the actors, the more likely they are to tell you your film back to you and teach you some more about it than just the. Um, the constraints of your own sensibility. And this is the marvellous thing about film. It's sort of authored by one person and created by thousands of people. And each, it's as if you're painting, uh, but there are, you know, 500 people holding the brush with you. And if you let go of it yourself, the brush will fall down. But if you hold it too tightly, then it won't enjoy all of the creative uh, acumen and acuity of the team that you work with. My wife Carolyn worked with Rafe and Kristen, both of whom claimed to have, have left two left feet, and made this moment um, with them, which I think is one of the. It was always one of the pieces that got pulled out, uh, because the, there's this connection, this filament joining the two of them. It's partly the way Rafe is looking at her now, where he's so fixed in this world where other heads are mobile. His is, you know, it's as if. He's got this laser beam investigating her, and uh, one of the appeals of the film, I'm sure, is this, you know, this desire which gets in the way of logic, which gets in the way of sanity, which wakes you up in the middle of the night, which gets you up in the morning, where you can't think about anything other than the object of your desire. And Rafe created that obsessive need for her uh, in these tiny moments. There are very few, if you counted the minutes that they're in the movie together early on, it's very few and far between, but you're left in no doubt, I don't think, of of um, the longing and yearning that they have for each other. Juliet, on the other hand, is somebody who's incapable of a lie as an actor, and her emotional reservoir, it's as if that she has three or four fewer layers of skin than the rest of us, and what she's feeling almost seems to colour her skin, you know. Um, Walter's convinced that she can blush at will. I don't think it's that. I think it's just that she just allows her feelings to be so real and palpable that we experience them with her. So when she's... When her spirit is... is um, here, it's a perfect example where this just comes from nowhere, this, this uh, intensity of feeling... And she can't cheat it, and she can't reproduce it at will, and so you have to be ready. And, and it's an interesting uh, challenge always as a director to deal with the different dynamics of actors because some actors grow a, a performance over 10 or 12 or 14 or 15 takes as they find what they can achieve in a moment. And Rafe is certainly one of those actors who just wants to work and worry away at each moment. Juliette is somebody who's there and present, and what she gives you, she gives you immediately. And you better make sure you get it. And on the other hand, it's very hard for her to do it five, six, seven times. And so the, the one of the challenges for a filmmaker is how to organise the shooting day to make sure you get the best from everybody, because obviously you shoot people's close-ups at different times. Uh, on the other hand, if the characters are both in the shot at once, you end up in this 
um, you know, between a rock and a hard place in terms of knowing, you know, when to really try and get the best from each actor in the same in the same take. How could he have when? I'm one of his ghosts, and he wouldn't even know it. I don't know what that means. Ask your saint who he is. I mean, this is the the sort of not not the. I believe what's called the MacGuffin. I know I never understood quite that term, but the 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 the, um, the film ha attempts to be uh, a mystery story, um, although I think it's probably uh, uh, only extremely tangentially a mystery story. But it, the identity of the English patient and what he's done and why he's there and how he came to be burnt is the um, is the binding agent of the narrative. Why is he in this? Well, you know, what, how did he fetch up in Italy? What had he done? Who had he loved? Why? What's his name? What's his real name? And Caravaggio, the character who appears in other of of Michael's novels, in *The Skin of the Lion*, along with Hannah. Um, these two characters are, in a way, the sort of detectives. It's, I suppose you could say it was a um, a sort of odd mixture of the storyteller and Inspector Morse. You know, it's a, an Inspector Morse mystery about uh, who is this masked man. And I remember trying to pitch this film to the studios, and um, they said, "So, okay, it's this burned guy in a bed explaining himself to a nurse." Um, in a monastery <laughs> at the end of the Second World War, the most unprepossessing pitch, I think, for any movie ever, which is why it took us so long to finance it and why the money was always disappearing. We had actors who weren't really very well known, uh, a filmmaker who'd done nothing, and a story which seemed profoundly obscure. So um, when afterwards, you know, nine Academy Awards later, when everybody said it was such an obvious film and such an, you know, a, a Oscar bait and... Just, it was always very ironic to me, given how little enthusiasm, in fact, zero enthusiasm that the material had when we were trying to to make it. I remember getting a, a, a wonderful letter from uh, an actress of, in, in, in Los Angeles who I was a friend, and I'd sent her the screenplay to, for some advice, and she wrote back and said, where's the third act? And so I wrote back and said, well, where's the second act? Um, it doesn't really correspond very much to any of the receive thinking about film, which is one of the reasons why I'm so proud of it, because I think that um, f film is only interesting when it pays absolutely no attention to rules and what's supposed to happen in a movie. And it, and, it, and it's always most interesting. And the great films, and you, after all, you only try and make the films which correspond to the sort of films you've liked yourself, are always the films which are distinctive and bear the mark of particular voice and so I try to find my voice in this film and my own sensibility and, and pay attention to it and we're just moving all over the place I mean it's interesting not having seen the film for so long just to be reminded of how briefly we are in particular locations and time and yet there is an overarching sensibility at work and I suppose it's this 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 you know carried from mouth to mouth Michael's story into my sensibility because I think the film owes as much to my own particular concerns and obsessions as they do to this great book and Italo Calvino said this great thing that you know the, the story is only beautiful in the way that it's retold I think that's a terrible um, uh, abuse of the quote but that's a, or corruption of the quote but that was the that's what I read what, what I, I felt I was reading when I read that quote that our job as storytellers is to, to keep refreshing stories and the job is to, I think, in an adaptation, is to be the, the great enthusiasm, enthusiast for a book that perhaps nobody else has read, to say, well, I read this great book and this is what it was about. And just as when you tell a joke or when you do rehearse a 
qualities of a book to somebody else, it's often interesting what you remember, what you think is most important, and what you forget. And when I did the adaptation, I didn't ever take the novel with me. And so it's really the sum of what I think was in the book, coupled with my own particular interests and obsessions at this time. I mean, obviously, I have a great um, fascination with Italy at the end of the war because um, it was just after my father had left Italy. And um, I, I, part of the research for the book was really trying to find out what his life might have been like. He left Italy in 1939, but certainly to try and sort of catch up with my own past. and. Also, the fact that I'm from an immigrant family, and part of so is Michael, a Sri Lankan, educated in England, brought up in Canada, and and uh, there's a sort of distance from nationality in the book, or a dislocation from it, which informs his sensibility and informs mine. Here I am in Italy, making a movie when I'm not really Italian, and my Italian is terrible, um, but when I'm in England, I feel entirely. Um, foreign somehow um, and displaced and even growing up on an island gives you a sort of double double glazed double glazed dislocation he wears a turban no he's Sikh if he wears a turban and there's a fascination with what it is to be English because I've never quite understood it myself and Almashi is also as we discover um, a faux Englishman um like, and also, like many people who are not English, his Englishness is is, is somehow more pronounced. Is you know, my my uh, in-laws are from Hong Kong, the Chinese uh, people f who live in Hong Kong, but who've been educated with uh, sort of best that uh, England can offer, and in many ways are much more English and much more have much more the gravitas of the English than the English do themselves. No, we can't. Here is Naveen manfully riding his motorbike, even though he was in, he had to learn for the film and fell off more times than I care to mention. One of the great sort of gags of filmmaking is that actors always say they can drive and ride horses until they are put in front of a car or put on a horse. And, and Naveen, you know, wanted this part badly and understandably. And so the fact that he couldn't actually ride a motorcycle and never got to grips with these rather calamitous old vehicles and machines was a um, a slightly hairy element of filming here. These fantastic Ford trucks that we had, which the, these these shots are remarkably like, I mean, thanks to Stuart and thanks to the whole production team, remarkably like the photographs which exist of the real Amashi's expeditions uh, and of those uh, early desert expeditions that, that were, were made. And, this is a great scene between Kristen and Rafe. And one day you say, I have to go to the desert, or what? I once travelled with a guide who was taking me to find... That line is a line I read in a journal of uh, an explorer. I love that, that that they didn't speak for nine days. And it seemed, that's one of the things that I did when I was writing the films. I read, you know, tons of stuff about letters and memoirs and documents which were created and recorded during the period of the 30s in the Sahara when the great sort of push of expeditioning was going on. And then also at the end of the war in Italy, trying to read uh, accounts of what it was like to be in uh, in a country that was, you know, was the one of the sites of one of the bitterest conflicts at the end of the war as the Allies marched up through, through the country and met... Uh, 
with huge resistance from the the Germans, but also with the strange combination also of, of um, Italian partisans. And I read a lot of material, and then that became another fabric to cut the film from. So some some elements here are directly inspired by the novel, and others are, are this strange collation of material that I used also as a springboard for the film. This is my driver who makes his film debut here. He was such a fantastic guy, and he he looked after me every day, and particularly with my sort of crap ankle. And I wanted to see his face in the film, so he that was his moment, uh, his day in court. Rafe is a wonderful artist himself, and so a lot of the material inside the book he created, he took away the Herodotus and, and sort of create... Again, this is the great advantage of having a real actor and somebody who prepares, is that they give you so much more. And so a lot of the elements in, inside the Herodotus were ones that he created and had fun created and, uh, creating, and at the same time, that was a way of preparing his character. He, he's one of those people who whose face lives perfectly in period, you know, that, that I think that's true of Kristen as well. It's quite hard to imagine them out and about in a pair of jeans and a with a cappuccino, you know, some, somehow um, they can carry off this you know, quite absurd costumes, you know, these funny baggy pants and um, these shorts, which I certainly couldn't uh, get away with. He makes seem enormously sexy, and um, it's a mixture of a sort of boarding school, um, you know, he looks like he's out of, you know, um, sort of Just William book, but by the same token, there's something in, in incredibly masculine and sexual about him. He, he, this is the, that great thing that Stuart Craig taught me is that you can do anything um, in terms of images and we've walked from an exterior of a cave that we created uh, in the Tunisian desert and onto the stage in Chinichita and fantastically seamlessly and um, that's partly down to him and partly down to John Seal who, who has been my collaborator ever since. In fact I really put together the, the team of of people who helped me make films in the process of making this one. And um, Steve Andrews, the first assistant director, has been with me on every film, and they're all here and, and, and helping me and teaching me as we go along. And this is, you see, some of the drawings which inform the opening sequence of the film, and we later see Catherine painting in her book, and that was where I got the opening. And this is the first time when we started to put Marta's voice together with the score in the early days of the editing and realized that it might be the whole key to the way that the music would work. And here she is. This is the same Italian painter giving us the... Um, the, the again, it's just this fascination with really close image and then with wide shots and... and uh, the fact that you don't ever know what you're looking at until something gives you the scale. So the image is an image until a paintbrush appears, and then you see that it's not full size, it's a miniature. And this tiny moment between this German explorer and his guide um, was is all that remains of an enormously complicated um, um, other story. We, we get into the sort of first part of my experience, really, of doing stunts in films now. Richard Conway, who was a special effects worker on the film, the artist who did a huge amount of work with 
Dennis Lowe, who, who's also continued to work with me, the visual effects supervisor, we had a, to do a crash here, and uh, it was a, a gimbal that we built up on this dune, and we had to actually prepare the whole road surface to accept this stunt, and uh, very complicated, one, one go. Um, and the goes over this dune. This is the gimbal tilting, and then one roll down. That's We'd only had four vehicles uh, for the whole film, and uh, we couldn't afford to lose any of them. Uh, and uh, there was a great deal of applause at the end of this stunt because everything was intact, and um, uh, we survived. Uh, but actually, we to get to this part of the desert, I mean, the desert is a desert because, of course, it's it, it, it means a place without real access or... Uh, um, any appurtenances, and so to get to this this degree of remoteness involved us actually building, I think, about 12 or 14 kilometers of road. But then this actual piece of road for that stunt had a steel reinforcement in the sand. And and uh, as I've just learnt on Cold Mountain, you know, be careful of where you go and shoot because the particular characteristics of desert, of sand, and of snow in Cold Mountain, but sand here, is that once you've um, walked across a piece of sand, it takes several days to repair. And so I remember watching a documentary about David Lynn making Lawrence of Arabia and ending up having a kind of breakdown. And those tracks there, for instance, were there when we left. And so you can't afford to make a mistake or uh, all you need is somebody walking across your set and it's, it's ruined for days. Get all this stuff off. I'll stay the odd thing about this film is it looks like everybody is in what we think of as desert temperature, which is extremely warm. And, and indeed, when I was scouting, it was often over 40 degrees centigrade. When we came to shooting, it was profoundly cold, and poor Rafe and Kristen shivered their way through uh, the film. And this, this beautiful light here is not the light of heat, it's the light of extremely, extremely cold weather. And I've never been as cold, I think, on any movie as I was on this one. But here you see the tracks and... Um, I just say one thing too, which is if you're thinking of making a film in the desert, don't bother. Um, because notwithstanding all its glory, it's just a nightmare. And here I was with my ankle bound up and trying to not walk across the set and ruin everything. And just, would you, I mean, every time somebody moves, they, the indentation of their movement. I mean, the nature of film is repetition. The nature of the desert is to resist repetition of anything. And we got to know and hate these particular row of dunes. We often had to completely pick up sticks and move to a whole new area of the desert in order to to keep working. There were, you know, if you'd if you'd been around this area when we were shooting, you'd see this constant process of movement and repair, and this this uh, picking up these little dunes and and uh, these little working areas and trying to reproduce them in some way somewhere else, and moving these vehicles without leaving their tracks again. It was just um, a nightmare. I should feel obliged. So cruel, this relationship, and charged with what they'd like to say to each other. There was a wonderful spoof on The English Patient, which, I mean, it's interesting, I haven't seen The English Patient since I made it, but I've seen the spoof many times called The Toy Patient, uh, and it was it, it really got to grips in a fantastic way with the nature of this relationship and its jagged... Um, clipped uh, um, characteristic. Anne Roth's costumes, as, as has been the case since uh, this movie with all the work I've done, are so intrinsic to 
the quality of the film, these shawls and wraps and even the hair that she, you know, was responsible for the, the look of. I mean, she really sort of created a, 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 a value for the film which goes beyond just dressing people. It's, it, it, it's like with all of, of the collaborators I have, they're filmmakers first and, and uh, practitioners second in the sense that they do their own particular job, but they're also feeding the film and feeding the whole film and, and, and in many ways you know each of them considers the film to be theirs and in a, in a, I think a, a, with a force that really obtains throughout the whole movie so you get a collection of filmmakers rather than a collection of servants um, servicing one person's idea so the quality of the film owes as much to her as it does to me and as the Stuart's work. This is a great scene I think in terms of just analysing what's going on here wind machines um, a, a sort of sandstorm done on the cheap as a sort of glue and bits of string sandstorm with, uh, I'm not directing this sequence, I'm there with a shovel shoveling sand into the wind machine because we didn't have enough crew and so we're all, all hands to the deck to get enough sand to go across <laughs> the image um, we had these tiny wind machines and a lot of fantastic Italian crew come out with us and everybody's there shoveling sand throwing sand, trying to get this this look and uh, uh, the result, I think, is marvelous. The the the, um, the the creation of it was really hilarious. This scene we shot in a garage on a rainy day. We were rained out of our set, and so w we were able to to continue working um, by sort of setting up an interior in a garage. Will we be alright? Yes. John Seal, who, who is the cinematographer, is a fantastic accomplice, a real soldier, never, ever gives up. And uh, we found a moment here just by... He, he, he takes a, often a second camera and just looks around, really, and, and uh, by keeping an eye on what he's doing, we can find more than we'd ever intended for. And this hand became such a... Because a hand is one of the things which gets painted in the film on the on the... On the cave wall, Rafe's hand goes into a rock. We started to get, of course, obsessed with hands and the way that hands work. And so her hand touching this, this uh, side window became a sort of central um, index of the film. <laughs> Rafe sort of delighted in all of the language of the face of Fantine. He's a wonderful actor of Shakespeare and whenever the language gets rhetorical or complex he's at his absolute best and the sense of being able to evoke the knowledge of this character and the history of this character is present just in the facility he has with language. We have a house on that coast. This house was an idea of the Isle of Wight. I had a sort of running gag about the Isle of Wight in the film and I imagined that the, the family had lived on the southernmost tip and he writes about of the island, which is also the southernmost tip of England. A wind, this and this touching here, which was a source of some uh, uh, argument between Rafe, Kristen and I, because I felt at this point in the film you really needed to see the surrender to each other, this opportunity, like time out of time, cut off from reality, where the relationship he finally began to thaw, and they were both so nervous they'd given the whole film away, and I assured them that uh, they were giving nothing away in this moment. It was about, or if they, they were giving it away, it was about time that we began to admit that this relationship was going to go somewhere.
again, just to, to do more than one take here, it's an absolute nightmare. And in fact, we degraded the sand so much that we were able to get away with this run up the hill. Of course, you can see again Kristen's footsteps and the difficulty of repeating. And also just arranging um, the logistics of the desert because getting a cab, that truck to go by and get them in the shot at the same time and orchestrate how far away they had to be. It, it, so you can see that the flare's going up, the truck's already gone too far past because the, the, it's just very hard to coordinate everything because the, the journey speeds. I mean, film often gets down to the most mechanical constituents of how to get everything to be in the shot at the same time and the, the more unwieldy the elements, dunes, cars going along on uh, quite mysterious surfaces, flares going up in the air, um, makes the, the, the ambition of the shooting it always challenges it. I, I should like to have them. I, I should be honoured. The others! This was done, this digging shot of digging out the other truck was done uh, in a mixture of the real June and on a, a sort of mini stage that we built over a suspended vehicle so that when we go into the top shot in a second, you're looking down onto a stage, because um, obviously we couldn't bury, much as the director cares finally about nobody or nothing, you couldn't really bury a group of actors in the sand for a few hours. So um, here we are digging in a real June. And Rafe, so valiant here, because there was a buried door here with glass, and he put his hand in and just cut it, his hand to shreds and then spent the rest of the scene dealing with the fact that he had an enormous gash in his hand. Um, yeah. This now, he's putting his hand in, and he cuts his hand very, very badly. Now we go down over the top and on the stage, and there, there are actors in that very sort of complicated little sequence. And this is the weird thing about film is that um, the simplest things can become enormously complicated to achieve, and particularly if you don't have real financial muscle. The more money you've got, the easier these stunts become. The less money you have, the more um, it, it uh, as I say, it becomes glue and bits of string productions. And, and uh, I think a lot of the fact, you know, the fact that we're mostly British filmmakers, Australian filmmakers, and a lot of my crew is Australian, and, and then Italian um, means that we're used not to having the resources of a real Hollywood movie. And so uh, the solutions, there's always a solution, um, and it doesn't always have to be the most expensive one. And what I've realized subsequently is that the money just makes for sanity rather than for any particular difference in the, uh, in the, what gets on the screen. It just makes life a bit more simple. This is all Rafe's handwriting, and you can see there's a sort of natural artist, or even the arrangement of the page is beautifully done, and you're not having to get a props department to reproduce his handwriting. He can do it himself. The Herodotus became his, really. There's the K that um, echoes Kristen's letter to me. I am K in your film. It's just so funny going back to this film so many years on and realizing that uh, I couldn't tell you what is going to happen next in this film. I feel like I'm watching it for the first time as well. I have a thing about flares. I just realized in Cold Mountain there's a big 
series of events connected with flares. I love there's something sort of magical about the, how light is created on faces, you know, when you see its source. Very hard, this, I mean, Mo Flam, who's the gaffer we work with, American gaffer, just to get this shot, to get a bit of light on those dunes, it was a huge to-do. And often, you know, the, the work that goes into a single night shot is really terrifying, how many lights and hundreds of people you require just to get some exposure on the negative. And the marriage. Is that a fiction? No, the marriage isn't a fiction. I love when I'm writing to try and find ways of putting the scene under pressure. You know, that, that often if you've got a love story and you've got two people, if you just have the two people uh, in, in a way uh, outside of the pressures of a real life, they can say whatever they want in the metabolism that they create. And, and, and it's often rather flaccid. But if you can place the critical moments against something else, so here the rescue is occurring just at the same moment as they're finally connecting with each other, it's much more intriguing. It sort of adds a, a tension to the writing and then to the performance. So rather than telling the story horizontally, it's always more interesting to stack the story up so critical narrative things are happening while characters are trying to grab moments of intimacy. It always seems to work better, and I do it more and more in the film, trying to make more than one thing happen at the same time. Because you're reading it too fast. Not at all. You, you have to read Kipling slowly. The eye is too impatient. Think about the speed of his pen. What is it? This piece of literature sits upon so many other pieces of literature, and that you know it is a sort of reading film as well. It's a film that loves books and words as much as it loves images. Um, that's my background. I was an academic, and it's the background of Michael, who, who you know, is writing a sort of palimpsestic book over other documents. And so Kipling and Candilus and Gyges from the Bible and the Herodotus are all sort of playing their part here. It's a, it's a film which is in love with books. Every household in the city is taxed, then melted down. Then later they fired the cannon at my people. Comma. The natives. Full stop. What exactly is it you object to, the, the writer, or what he's writing about? What I really object to, Uncle. I mean, obviously, Michael, uh, it's fascinating to see the, the to, to try and work out the skeleton of a book or its its DNA, because, you know, Michael's present in both parties here. You know, he, he is a, a brown-skinned man uh, with a particular view of, of the, the Commonwealth. Um, but he's also English in his education and his sensibility. And so I, I feel the dialectic of the scene of his brilliance with language and his knowledge of literature fighting um, with the position of the colonised and some of the sense of exploitation of the third world countries of, of Britain's colonies in, in the war and another, of course, in other periods. It's a, it's a complicated dynamic. Well, I'm indifferent to cooking, not Hannah's cooking in particular. Have either of you tried condensed milk sandwiches? <laughs> They're very good with salt. And we're back in Tunis now. Although, I think in the course of the scene, we now move seamlessly to the Lido in Venice. This is actually the Death in Venice Hotel in the Lido. And Stuart, you know, I was never convinced we could do this, but we could never find a real Shepherd's Hotel. The one in Cairo was burned down. Cairo itself 
when this movie was set in the 30s had 750,000 people. It's now got about 18 million, and so we couldn't, and it's black from pollution, so we couldn't shoot in Cairo. We couldn't find a big colonial hotel in Tunisia, and so we went to the Lido and the Hotel de Bain um, and used this exterior and the interiors to create the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo. And oddly enough, when I was making the time to Mr. Ripley, I met a, a Hungarian who'd been in Cairo in this period, so a sort of Almashi, the doppelganger, who said that it was so evocative of his time. He said he felt he'd been transported to Cairo, and I didn't have the heart to tell him, well, actually, it was shot in Venice. Um, but that, again, is the strange you know, magic of movies. Thank you. We thought it was Cairo, so it became Cairo. And there's a wonderful pieces of, of architecture that, that Stuart put up. You know, behind those frontages there is not the, the Nile, but um, the canal around the Lido. This is a stage piece of work, and Stuart designed these this sort of slatted... Um, I can't remember what the name for them is, but the sort of very sort of archetypal Egyptian sort of colonial um, sort of Venetian blinds here that gives you this sort of slatted light and um, that John exploited. And we'd actually shot this at the very end of the film. It's sort of of the way that film making phrases itself so that you often do the most important scenes either at the very beginning or the very end. The end is better to do them. Um, but it's sort of hard for the actors to go back to the moment when they first make contact with each other. There's a sort of big um, translite photograph behind them there of Cairo, which sort of gets you to feel like there's a real world there. And the, um, the sound picture is very important. You're sort of evoking there's the, the call to prayer going on which we used again and again, because I loved that sort of strange sound. And here, this dress that Anne Roth made, because we had to keep tearing it <laughs> again and again, so we had six of these dresses. And again, this is about, you know, if there's many types of love, this is the love of desperation and, and uh, carnal love. And I wanted to turn it on its head a bit, and so I had this scene of him sewing immediately afterwards. First of all, you rip the bodice apart, and then you sew it back together again. And I felt that it was just this flexing of tone that really interests me. Um, and there's something that Kristen does now which I think is so incredible because this getting into this bath, very few actors would do this. You know, the problem with intimacy in films is that the nature of intimacy is that it's unobserved and the nature of filmmaking is that it's all observed. You know, we were all stuffed into this bathroom and if you could just pull back, the camera pull back now, you'd find me crouched under the bath and the sound recordist and the, the camera and the focus puller and all the other sort of strange team watching this moment of absolute privacy. And the way that Kristen gets into the bath, I think, sells... Um, uh, you know, sex is not very interesting in films, but the the surround of sexual relation, the sort of the unadorned nature of it is the thing that really interests me. And so actually a lot of the sexuality in the film is, is clothed and a lot of the intimacy is naked. You know, when they actually are uh, involved in an act of carnality, they're almost always fully clothed. But when we find them at their most naked, as it were, emotionally, then they are naked physically. If you were to take one moment from her performance, it's oddly for me this one, because to do this is no mean feat. Um, not to feel like you're, 
you're um, objectified in a moment, and and uh, they're wonderful in the scene. Walter pointed out to me when we were in the cutting room that I have a, a real tendency, and I think it's a quality or a vice, depending on where it comes in the movie, that I can't allow one tonality in a scene to obtain. So this is a moment of real, one of the very few moments of, of of love where it's uncomplicated between them, but I can't let it go. And so I do this little rosary of likes and loves. And just to remind myself that when you are stealing a relationship and to remind the audience when you're stealing a relationship, the shadow of it's always present. And so this scene, like almost every scene between them in the film, goes wrong. And so Rafe, who's finally succumbed to her, and she's had to actually go and stand in front of him and say, here I am, you know, enough already. And he so wants her and so loves her, but he can't resist this moment of cruelty and, and, and also of his own, it's sort of assassination of his own feelings. And so things go wrong. And sometimes we wish when we're putting the film together we could actually have a couple of minutes where things were going right, <laughs> but we never, I never seem to be able to manage that. Who is this? Don't you recognize me? Is it you? <gasps> so fat. <laughs> and it's it's funny how these two women are so marvelous because they bring such different characteristics to bear. You know, everything with Kristen is feels like the 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 strings are tightened to breaking point. You know, if she's an instrument, it's at, at the, the top of its tension. And here there's this big heart, easy heart, that no matter that she's, as a character, so plagued by the sense that she is a curse on everybody she meets and that anybody who gets close to her dies, nevertheless her natural instinct is this absolute generosity. She's a listener and an observer. And when she looks, every time she focuses on him, you just feel like that you're allowed to look at him because of the way that she does. Who's Kay? Kay. It's for Catherine. And again, these transitions, just everything, how the film gets out of the previous scene into the English patient's room and then now back into the the Sahara to Cairo. And this was, I think, one of my favourite sequences in the film. We were in this amazing sort of palace in Tunisia and um, this need... Where now it's played out again, not in private, in public, in the most public of circumstances, a Christmas party for the troops. Um, and I'd wanted to have three or four hundred English soldiers, and we tried very hard to find them. We ended up with, I think, about three English speaking people in the scene, and the very funny thing comes up in a minute. But this sort of sexual language and played out in this backdrop really is great there. And I literally, you know, put bars between them so that they're, they're so glued together, but everything is between them as well, walls, bars, circumstances. And that makes it, to me, much more carnal, you know, the fact that they have to go somewhere and, and, and make love in public. Fascinating to me. Betrayals in wartime are as nothing compared with betrayals during peace, and this... This as 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 our marsh is writing and this little 
assignation that they're planning. I'm fine. Oh, it's, it's this heat. It's charged simply because everybody, all of the of the cast, as it were, are, are going to be present during it. And I had this, again, this idea that the sound would swoon as well as Catherine would swoon. So we used this mixture of A Christmas Carol and, and uh, Gabrielle's music to create this... this uh, Walter did it, actually, in The Godfather, and he gave a wonderful lecture recently about how the sound in a particular scene when the horse's head is in the bed is this Nina Rota waltz um, double tracks out of sync so that you actually get a dissonance in the track and here the dissonance is created by the difference between the carol and the um, and Gabrielle's music I actually this is very hard for actors to do this sort of stuff you know where do they touch how much can they touch what are the parameters and so what we ended up doing is I drew each gesture so they're actually every movement is choreographed so that the actor can surrender to the choreography and not get into that strange thing where they don't know whether they're going too far um, or they don't know how far they're going to go. And it was odd to do this. It was really, you know, given how, I think, how enormously erotic this moment is, it's done absolutely with under instruction. And I wanted, the, or even the amount of costume, I wanted to get these double straps and everything so that it's all about the promise and the the reveals. And, and again, hands are, are very important. And you hear this... Silent Night, and then Gabrielle's music, and... It's so dissonant, and the circumstance is dissonant. So you keep cutting between this funny um, group of, 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 you know, of people in their reverent um, respect for Christmas, and the, the bagpipe player, and then this... this um, desperate thing going on behind the glass. It's also trying to take advantage of the real location. This was a real place, we couldn't build in it, so everything we're doing is trying to use the geography that we've acquired. <laughs> Something about when you get characters who are so held and so bottled up, when they do let go, the release of it is volcanic. And um, people whose sexuality is available to them are much less interesting, I think, on film than those who are constantly in battle with it. And that's so true of these two thoroughbreds that, that Rafe and Kristen created. And then I thought, well, then you need a clown. This is really an homage to Ibi Toloni, Fellini's movie, where they're often the characters have their most... There's a wonderful sequence where they're all dressed up as clowns or in a fancy dress party when their hearts are breaking. And something about... Uh, um, Jeffrey Clifton here being in a Santa Claus outfit makes the pain of the deceit and the all, all the more all the more complicated and the pattern of this tile on the wall which is also sort of crazed and overexpressive it just made like a Matisse background. Too hot, like you. Colin is marvelous. I I cut a version of this scene myself. I was so happy with what I'd done because I loved this the writing that we found in this scene and the performances. I thought it was sort of where this, the film, this sequence where the film is most like the way I'd imagined it. So I cut it myself, thought I'd done a great job, and then I went in to see what Walter had done and realized that that's why he was an editor and I wasn't, because <laughs> it was so much more beautiful and unexpected. If you asked me, I'd go home tomorrow, if you wanted. 
I love different agendas in a scene where, you know, this is the, the lesson of Chekhov or all the writers that one aspires to being like the dramatists where they what what is being talked about is not what's being talked about, but the audience knows and even the characters kind of know, but what the language is doesn't reflect all, all of the sort of subterranean, subcutaneous rhythms and this horrible thing, you know, the smelling of her hair and it's the sort of sex, sex in her hair and his misinterpretation, but also you can see that there's something else with him too, that the fact he's gravitated towards the question tells you that it, his own mind is churning and insecure and... That's the, I mean, that's the sequence in the film I had to pull out, I would say, well, that's the movie that I was trying to make. The, interesting enough, the bagpipe player we had to to find in... Um, in obviously, in, came from Scotland, um, arrived a few minutes before we started shooting, and, and I was so happy because they hadn't been able to locate one in Africa, and funnily enough. And uh, we started, and he said, well, you know, I can't play Silent Night on the bagpipes. So that was an interesting start to a very interesting day. And if you go back and look at that Christmas sequence, you'll see that a couple of times you see some drunken soldiers who apparently have their eyes fixed on the table as they sing, and it's because we had to write out the words of Silent Night phonetically so that these Tunisian people who had no idea what a Christmas carol was could get their mouths moving at least you know, plausibly in sync with the, with the, with the carol, which was actually recorded at, Ab uh, at Abbey Road Studios, or Air Studios, I think, about a year later. Darling, it's me. Listen, I'm sorry, something's come up. Oh, no. Now, don't sulk. I'll be back tomorrow evening. I'm going to sulk, and I'm not moving till you get back here. Promise? Mm. That's good. OK, my sausage, I love you. Didn't know you were going anywhere. I'm not. I'm going to surprise her. It's our anniversary. She's forgotten, of course. What's the symbol of your first anniversary? I should get something. Is it cotton or paper? First anniversary. What, you two been married for donkey's years? Been friends for donkey's years. I hardly remember this scene at all, but it's, of course, a setup. The film sort of shifts focus over to Clifton's position, and I love that about movies and about the, the, the dramatic uh, world in, 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 in particular, which is that it constantly allows you to shift the perspective of a moment. You know, a novel is always obliged, as it were, to tell a story from a particular position, even if it does shift. It doesn't shift so simply as film does. Film is all about point of view and who's looking at who. There's this sort of strange objective viewpoint, but most of the time the camera is subjective. And I love this notion, and I've done it many times in my writing, where somebody goes to surprise somebody else and is surprised themselves. So here's a, a moment where Clifton goes to, um, to surprise his wife on their anniversary and, uh, and because she's not prepared for it, her own um, sort of complex deceptions are exposed. It was also a very important moment to reveal Caravaggio in the other world. We've only seen him hitherto in the world of the monastery and I just wanted to just indicate that there was some final connection between what went on in the desert and why Caravaggio turned up in Italy, even though he suggested it was because of a prior relationship with Hannah. There's another thing going on altogether. And you hear Marta Sebastian now uh, on this record, and, and this track, Jerolem, Jerolem, was something that I became obsessed with when I was writing, and I was determined to have it as a piece of source music in the film, and that's where the whole connection with, with Marta's voice came in the film, that we actually dramatised it first and then used it as, as part of the score second. It's beautiful. Hmm. It's the back. 
And again, it's just this this playing with antecedents, playing with with source, because of course Almashi describes what this song is about, but in fact he's trying to talk about himself. And then one day he falls under the spell of a mysterious English woman, a harpy, who uh, beats him and hits him, and he becomes a slave. A lot of, you know, this is a violent relationship in every sense. It always is on the edge of attack, you know, grabbing at clothes. It's destructive. You know, that the, the, there are many other types of love and friendship in the film. This is the one which destroys everything. And so they're always hitting each other, tearing at each other, um, subsequently, you know, Catherine hits her head in a cinema. It's just got violence and bruising all over it. And here, this is the great illustration. Here is the sort of version of the desert on a woman's throat. I love the fact that you can get this close with a camera and then you can get so wide in the Sahara. And I tried always to think of those two polar opposites, you know, the, the tiniest... Um, Supersternal notch, which I think is an entire invention. A doctor somewhere would be listening to saying, "What is he talking about?" But we were sort of it's the supersternal notch, whatever it's really called, and um, and the way that the body becomes another kind of landscape of intimacy. And again, this moment of absolute sort of communing between them, of real connection, is moder moderated and. Um, criticised, I suppose, by the presence of Clifton and his taxi outside. This is not in the book. It's just something that I wanted to... to, to because con context is everything, contextualising moments and, and putting pressure on them. And the presence of Clifton outside and this hopeless sort of stew uh, makes the scene work for me. Yeah, you're a different wife. This this tonality of sort of sand, which is you know picked up by Anne and the costumes by Stuart and the, all of the decoration and 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 Stephanie McMillan, who's a set decorator, they they sort of created a, a, a you know I suppose quite literally a sandy look for this part of the film and this this was a an obsession i had these paper hearts and nobody knew how to to make them paper the first anniversary props are and this is a film of props thimbles and books and photographs all of which are like evidence you know and, and there's a great delight i think as an audience in just seeing how the evidence accrues what its provenance is and um, and so you start off, as it were, with a series of exhibits, and then as the film goes on, you see where those exhibits came from and how they came. Of course. Should we be all right? And again, the sort of strange sleight of hand of geography here, where we're now in the, the middle of Tunis, um, in this rather marvellous old smelting area that we created or Stuart created and they're walking up the stairs and then as they turn around the stairs they're in Venice but actually uh, I'm, I'm lying the first part of it was not in Tunis it was in another city then these stairs were in Tunis and now the next shot is Venice so I, I'm I want my hand 
It was like doing, you know, film 101 here, just how you can put together. The, 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 I think when you start making movies, you think unless you can see it in front of you, it can't be in the movie. But what I've learned is that you just create the world that you want to see and the audience will travel with you. And it's not looking um, for the... They're not looking for the cracks. They're just wanting to be... Uh, to believe in, in, in the world that you've created for them. And just as the film is built on a love of books, it's also built on a love of music. And Michael, Saul and I were joined with a passion for music, particularly for jazz. And so here's this little test on jazz. It's really a sort of a gag about the three of us and, and the preparation for the film where we were all, I suppose, Saul is a great record producer of jazz. It was the thing that brought us together. Um, was the fact that he owns several record labels and you know showered me with gifts of uh, Art Pepper and Bill Evans and all the kind of jazz we love and Michael loves jazz too and so this test of music is is um, I suppose a sort of passing reference to our own obsession with with music and the music of this period which is you know music takes you to a particular period in a way that almost nothing else can. You saved my life. I haven't forgotten. I thought you were very It's interesting, you know, that, that one of my failings as a filmmaker and as a dramatist is that I can't bear the sort of monolithic nature of films. The Hollywood film essentially gets interested in one person and tells you a film through attention to one person or two people. I love the fact that in the world everybody thinks they're a leading character. There's nobody in any part of any world who doesn't think that the world you know, is theirs and that they understand it from their perspective. And I think film, you know, ought to reflect that and stories ought to reflect that in some way. So even this, you know, when, when Hannah passes Kevin's character in the alleyway, I want to make sure that, that you're reminded that he goes on and is the centre of his story, is the leading character in his story, she goes on the leading character in hers, Kip is the leading character in his, and that, that that's the nature of film, that film is just walking through and capturing people's lives but it, that you always want to believe if the camera stayed with that person if it stayed with with Kip now there'd be a whole other film and it would be as plausible and as dimensional as as the ones that were other ones that were following and it, and and th that philosophy of course makes it very hard because there's a reason why film is so centralized it's because we we understand the world better in fiction if if we are um, more connected to a single character, and so you know the the what I think of as as a, a a real exposition of my own interest, which is don't forget that we're all leading characters. Often leads to a very decentralised um, and challenging population where you're being asked to hang on to many many threads and understand. Um, many journeys simultaneously and there's just a certain number of those journeys that you can collect and hang on to before the movie starts to unravel we're back in italy again now even though it says tobruk <laughs> we're we're in the fantastic part of Italy, viareggio and these were mussolini uh, boys camps uh, he created these these places for young people to come and and learn about fascism, I guess. And they're sort of abandoned buildings up on the Viareggio coast. This character, uh, Clive Marison, acting here, was a much much bigger character in the film again, and and ends up having this single scene. And I apologise to all the actors who made 
fantastic contributions to this movie and through my own stupidity you know their work didn't make it into the final version because there just wasn't enough room to tell all of these variegated stories his best friend absolutely destroyed the boss one of the only effect shots in the film we had three parachutists i think and then duplicated the rest i didn't even know you could do that when i started um but I just felt that we had some time to open up the scale of the film, and uh, it's such, really such a chamber piece pretending to be an epic film, and uh, every now and again we're, we were able to go outside and just get a, at least some small sense of what was happening in the world. And, you know, it is a story about love in, in the time of war, and, and uh, it's also a war film with almost no war in it. That, I think that was it, that was the war. <laughs> we just had that in the opening shots. Some great German actors in the film who, um, many of the, I think through, I went to, to Germany to cast and met a few of them. One of them, Sebastian's become a director subsequently, but they they played many, many roles. They stayed for forever and uh, were very good value. That's John Seal there making an appearance. And if you were to run that back, you'd see his jeans poking through his leather coat. Um, he stood in for Jürgen Prochnow in that shop who hadn't arrived at that point of the thing. July 41. This was a tough scene, but actually all the sort of set piece scenes in the film are always easiest to do finally because you spend most time worrying about them prior to shooting. Uh, and uh, you get a lot of support from everybody because you draw the sequences and you work out what you're going to have to do. Often the most difficult scenes finally to shoot are the quietest ones between two people. The, in some ways, the more... That's Sebastian, the director, is doing very well, and hello there. Um, great actor and, and a very talented young director. Yeah? Can you get me a doctor? I'm sick. Ich weiß nicht warum. I'm leaking blood. Jürgen, who's a tremendously good actor, he was probably known from Das Boot and, and uh, really a first-class actor, was in a pair of extremely uncomfortable boots, which I think obsessed him throughout the shooting. So all I can remember from this scene is how miserable he was because his boots didn't fit him and he was um, in, in great pain, I think. So he, he's the torturer, but I think he's the one who's being tortured by the costume here. Beautifully lit by John, the scene, and we we used a room which had this ceiling light. I mean, I mean, not light and electrolyte, but a, a hole in the ceiling, and it gave us this beautiful source. You only see trouble. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Walter Murch is convinced I have an obsession with thumbs. Poor Caravaggio's thumbs. I didn't create this. This is in in the book. Um, in Cold Mountain, a character has her thumbs trapped in a, a gatepost. And, and, I, and I, I, Gabrielle, who did the music for this film, couldn't look at this scene. And so he actually scored for a sequence he could never, he could never look at. Ten fingers. How about this? It's a very theatrical scene, and I don't mean theatrical in a pejorative sense, but it's these scenes are where you where you can use language as a tool, as a sort of weapon, are, are fun to write. Often in in uh, in film, you let the pictures do all the talking. Here, the context of the scene and the and the pressure on the scene comes from what this character says. I get no help from these people. Telephone. I'm sick of this room. I'm sick of this heat. And I'm sick of this phone. How could you? 
and go very handheld now because it's all getting very claustrophobic. We're just trying to make it more and more uh, sort of the distress, the whole sequence of the shooting. It gets out, it's out of control, and so the camera starts searching around rather than being too classically operated. And we're, we've lost, if you, as you can see, the camera's never quite stable because you just want to get the sense that now that it's chaos. I promise you that that uh, Willem's thumbs were perfectly intact at the end of this sequence. And we used a great number of close-ups and a lot of cuts. There's actually see almost nothing. There's just that one flash there of, of, uh, of blood. The man who took my thumbs? I found them eventually. It's a much shorter sequence than I remember, actually. Willem here is holding a pair of prosthetic hands, which, and, and if again, if we could just, you know, tilt down here, we'd see this enormously common. It was very difficult to operate. They were articulated hands that Hansen's made for us, and his own, they were strapped to his elbows. And so there was this, well, there's a wonderful photograph that Brigitte Lacombe took, who's a photographer who I love and who works with us, where you see... Uh, Willem's real arms and then these strange prosthetic arms poking out looking like some again looking like somebody from the storyteller series and where are the expedition maps in my room those maps belong to his majesty and again Maddox this character played by Julian Wadham who's another friend and wonderful actor again who doesn't ever seem right when he's wearing um, contemporary clothes but seemed to have been plucked out of the 1930s this arrived this morning. The relationship between Maddox and Amashi in the novel and in, originally in my screenplay was of paramount importance. I felt that the friendship and the, the testing of their friendship and the consequence of their friendship was as many ways as important to me and as resonant to me as any of the more conventional love stories. Spears. In a war, if you were in the desert, you were in North Africa. Owned the desert. <laughs> um, Maddox. That place. The way that the English deal with emotion, the way that, that, place at the base of a this for God's sake man pull yourself together is one of the lines that stays forever in my yeah. mind. Does it have an official name? For God's sake man, pull yourself together. This totally unraveled Almashi at this point. Um, the Pathenia, this is a sort of a sequence I like very much and uh, uh, I, I remember as a kid going to the cinema and seeing Pathé News and just being, not quite in this period, but uh, in the 60s, just going to Saturday morning pictures and watching the news. And uh, I wanted to get a reference to the Isle of Wight in here, and so the next bit of newsreel is uh, from a swimming event on the island. And, and uh, Sandown Bay. Um, I... <laughs> This is so that when my friends from the island go, they can have a laugh. But also, again, that it's it's Michael Ondaatje is a man in love with the cinema, and uh, and with the history of cinema, and 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 a lot of his writing, I think, pays homage to cinema. And you know, the the film has all kinds of evocations. You know, it's got there there are clearly are echoes of of Casablanca and the story. I mean, in a, in a sort of deflected way. And also film, like music, sort of tells you the period, tells you the nature of the period. 
and it's all stolen. Everything is stolen in this film. That was, you know, if there was one word to describe the relationship, it's stolen. Stolen moments played out in all these public places. Say goodbye here. I'm not agreeing. Don't think I'm agreeing because I'm not. Any minute now, he'll find out we'll barge into someone. This walk away is very important here. It's a nature, too, of film that when we started this process of trying to put the cast together, the idea was that Catherine was straight out of university and that Amashi was a man in his early middle age. And we ended up casting two contemporaries who were just approaching their 30s. And it's very hard to imagine a younger Catherine or an older Amashi now. And it's this insistence that the, the right casting has on it being completely right, that you could never imagine anybody else in these two roles now. And the odd thing is, of course, as you go through in the process of casting, so many permutations of who might play one part, who might play the other, and all of them seem plausible. If you go back now and I look at my notes and see the lists of people that we talked about and talked to, and then you see who we have, and it just seems so absurd. The other ideas seem so crazy. And that's the nature of real actors, is that they insist upon their the inexorability of their creations. I believe I'm rather late. Good. We're all here. And this is the other part of Rafe, which is giddy and um, crazed. And he really called, there's something in this performance which collects him, I think, more accurately than anything I've seen from him before. Not because it's the best performance, I'm sure he's done beautiful work in a thousand other projects, but because somehow he is this man. He is this strange mixture of enormous um, humor, enormous wit, enormous intelligence, enormous constraints and and brittleness, and it just it just feeds so much into his own sensibility. You always feel that he's a dangerous soul. What's my point? I remember he took me when we were discussing this part. He took me up to a little cottage he had in uh, East Anglia, and uh, we had these pheasant that were hung and uh, they were really hung and I f they were you know purple I think <laughs> but I was certainly nervous about eating them but he had a real delight in the sort of putrefaction and I think there is a sense with him that he's this enormously refined man with a an animal lurking somewhere but these were the words actually before they were cleaned up so desperate now at this point and again a scene that would have been very different, his anger and rage at losing her if they'd been in a private situation is much more complicated when her husband is present, when their friends are present, when everybody knows, and it's all played out inside the sort of tight corset of, of culture, these sort of elaborate meals and silver service, and it's the... the that's really interests me when you have to keep the lid on and the, the, but the lava is, is, is banging against the lid. Sidney Pollock is my partner in Mirage. Uh, he'd been a great help getting this film up and running and had read the script and helped me all, in all kinds of ways, came to the cutting room, was always very nervous for an American audience that they would really part company with Armashi in this scene because he's just violent and, and uh, lethal in his feelings, but I felt this is where the movie tells the truth, you know, that that love can be as poisonous as it is uh, 
you know, a baptism of, of grace and everything else. So there's, it's, it's capable of such murderousness. Holding his collar, you were gripping his collar. What for? Hmm? Is he next? You're going to drag him into your little room. Where is it? Is this it? And again, these tiles, which which are also sort of vertiginous in some way, it's just that, that they were very, they sort of became very important to me as a backdrop. That over, normally I'm attracted to very austere backgrounds, but something about the floridness here always seemed to coincide. We tried to make it coincide with the um, the, the turmoil of the characters, and yet again, this hand that you, you know, the image is asking you to focus on. Dance with me. I want to touch you. And belonging and possession, land and nation and ownership become such important themes in this. Ownership is the thing that Amashi says he hates, and ownership is the thing that fuels him in these moments. And this, again, these contradictions were, you know, were, were the trampoline of the, of the writing. What do you hate most? Ownership. These things that belong to me, I want them. So possession and surrender and... Why don't you go? Get some sleep. Would you like me to? The film flexes between these these variegated types of love. We've gone from this, you know, extremely cruel exchange between Amashi and Catherine, and now we go to another kind of love in the film, the love burgeoning between Kip and Hannah. And this is almost, you know, brother and sister love. It's, it's, it, it does have a, a sexual component to it, but essentially it's the meeting of, of orphans in a war. You know, it's this sort of strange coming together. People would never, under normal circumstances, make a connection. And Gabrielle's music now, this other element, which is the, a much sweeter and tender part. And I wanted to do something. Diane Dryer, who's my script supervisor, who's incredibly important to me and a real help, said that this looked like uh, the Matahari or something. He was an Indian restaurant or something. There's the lights here. Um, but I just wanted something where you, 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 the movie went from that sort of grown-up sexual struggle between... Rafe and Kristen to something much more innocent and naive, and the music is naive, and the idea here is just uncommon, like students making connection. There's no experience involved in these moments. And even the kiss, you know, we, even that seemed like a trespass. So um, I've tried to sort of do it more discreetly, whereas the other parts of uh, love in the film are often sort of full on. I wanted this all to be glancing. And if you've seen a scene of, you know, rather violent lovemaking between Amash and Catherine, the correlative for Kip and Hannah had to be quite different. So I wanted to do a sort of lovemaking scene which had no physical connection. This scene has is, is, uh, been probably the most extrapolated scene from the film. Uh, it, there's an episode in the novel which was very arresting to me, which is where Kip takes an old professor and shows him the frescoes in Arezzo, the Piero della Francesca frescoes. And, and we couldn't shoot in Arezzo. A, it was too far away, and B, you're not allowed to shoot the frescoes, and so we had to create them. And uh, they're actually, Michael reminded me later, that, you know, they're really at, it's almost at ground level. But it's part of the conceit of the book and then of the film 
that uh, we hoist Hannah up into the air. And as I said, it was about making a lovemaking scene in which the gestures are are not sexual, but are gifts, you know, man to woman. And you, you, you feel like the swinging of, of uh, Juliet's character of Hannah uh, is a sort of the sensual gesture of of the film and and um she everything is about her in this this sequence she tells you that the joy she delivers the joy to you and um very hard to do this we, we actually created this whole set in the studio Chinichita, or rather Stuart did with his team and it's it's a, you know fantastic um expression of the film i think because it it it's dreamy and romantic, and it's come hard on the heels of that, you know, drunken sequence in Cairo. And it's the, it's it's everything in film is context. You know what follows what, and that's why post-production is so interesting, particularly in a film like this, which has no real narrative logic. It's just about how to inflect one mood against the next. And this scene in another part of the film would have had no meaning. And um, we struggled with its placement to, to to make sure that we were ready for it. We were ready for the relief it offers. And again, it's a very brief moment. And um, but it just it, it, film the film is about finding two or three moments which really deliver. And this one delivered for us, thank God. And Gabrielle's music is beautiful here. Very hard because it's the one time, and I've never done it since because of this. Where the temp music, whether in pre, you know, in post-production, you often add a piece of music to just see how the f scene is going to work, and then there's a danger of attachment to that temp music, and the comp poor composer comes late to the the table and brings new music, and often it seems to be less uh, auspicious than the temp music you put on. In fact, it's just to do with how film quickly acquires its own logic and its own necessity and so you believe that the music you've been listening to as you've watched an image was the right music and anything that you put on afterwards is the wrong music in fact quite the reverse in this case it was a beautiful piece of the score that was a subject of great scrutiny in the recording and post-production because we would all just grown used to feeling that the truth of the scene was this other piece of music and and the recording of it at air studios in, in hampstead um, it was a fraught one because we, we, we all felt that we were losing something because our ears were just, you know, um, stopped up with the previous sound. And once we'd surrendered to it and, and let go, we realised that, um, that what Gabrielle had done was, was just beautiful. And <clears throat> it's a strange combination of, of elements there, of Juliet's performance of Naveen, of the set, of the lighting and the music, which gives you that, you know, what I saw later, you know, realised later meant a great deal to, to the audience who blessed this film when it was released. But again, I would say that in another context, in another place in the film, it would have had none of the import. This is Juliet now unravelling and just so clear in her own mind that, that the fact that she's given in to her feelings for this man means that he's doomed. And, and it's again about setting you off on a different track. You think you're going to see something next that's going to damage Kip, and of course it's another life that's about to be damaged. But that's a face you could look at for your whole life, I think, and it's just so expressive and... You know, when you get actors of that quality, then then as a filmmaker, you're just 
you're you're blessed and and uh, because they do so much work for you and it's 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 the weird process of of writing where when you write you have to fill everything in or as mu much as you can and when you shoot everything is about ellipses everything is about what you take away and how much you can take away and let the actors fill in for you because you know a look uh, can can just replace a page of of the dialogue in a second. This actual piece of shooting was the day after I broke my ankle and getting down the side of this uh, sort of, um, uh, of this bridge here was a night I was carried down. That's what I mean, unfortunately, whatever you're looking at, all I'm remembering is, is being carried down the side of this conduit and, and feeling absolutely wretched and trying to get upstairs. There's a different bridge that, uh, above. Um, a typical Italian situation where we had all our permissions in place to shoot here and then when it came to shooting the police suddenly showed up and said we couldn't run tanks over this bridge that it wasn't uh, it wasn't safe and so I'm afraid that all knowledge of Italian deserted me while we turned over at least once on this bridge and then I suddenly could understand what the police were saying to me but we needed that shot of the tanks <laughs> passing so we got it and ignorance was was bliss it was supposed to be a sort of dozen tanks going across, but in the end, of course, we could only afford and only find three. Um, but these are there are three different bridges involved here. Now we're on another one, and if you look carefully and break it down, you can see they've all got completely different characteristics, but just the cutting persuades you that you're below one bridge and above, above it. It's just there's only one bridge involved. In fact, this a lot of this stuff was shot on a stage of the bomb and... Fuller's Earth, which is the filmmaker's, you know, most precious <laughs> substance, you know, which gives you the 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 sense that the bridge is about to collapse. And as far as the police were concerned, it was about to collapse anyway. In reality, with all these vehicles on top. <laughs> A lot of writing and post-production here to make sense of what we're watching, a sort of uh, uh, an overcrank shot there to make sure you could see he's cutting a wire, lots of... This is, this is a real post-production creation, this sequence, really, just to try and make it work and get this, you know, a sufficient amount of tension into it. It was one of several bomb disposal... I mean, bomb disposal was a huge element of the novel and a huge element of the screenplay. And I think I wrote three or four sequences in my original draft, 250-page draft of the screenplay, all it came down to a single one in the film. And that's often the case, too, is that you realise that you can say enough in one sequence in a film that replaces... Just as the, there, there are ellipses within scenes, also the film itself, the audience can get ahead of you very, very quickly. It doesn't need to see it something more than once to understand what somebody does and, and, and the pressures on what they do. The, the, this again for the students of filmmaking, you know, the, the light changes in this scene were, were so awful to deal with and, and uh, the geographical changes and the light goes from being behind their backlit, their frontlit, their sidelit and somehow uh, uh, the narrative 
you know, tricks your eye into thinking you're seeing one coherent scene. We did this to Ella Fitzgerald because um, it, it, um, it got us in the mood when we were shooting and then we could never bear, even though I think it's completely anachronistic, this recording, we could never let go of it. Another example of getting over-attached, you know, the actors needed something to get them in the mood. We played Ella very loud on the a loudspeaker and, and then it just insisted on staying in the film. <laughs> Another translite behind Kip's head. To, you know, we're in the studio in Chinchitaba. We're trying to get a sense of the exterior world, <laughs> and also just this sense of fun and relaxation. You know, there's my mother playing the accordion. There's my father behind her and the tambourine, and my aunt next to her. My, there's my aunt, Auntie Betty. Hi, and uh, this was partly because my. My mother and her sister and her third sister, who's died, were part of an accordion trio, and uh, uh, I wanted to, this festa at the end of the war, I wanted to, um, I wanted to get my parents in the movie, of course, and um, so we got these wonderful accordionists to show up, and that's my mum and dad and my aunt. This is a statue that we built in the square in Pienza, and when we arrived here to shoot, the statue had been up for a week or so, and tourists were bewildered by it, photographing it, trying to sit on it, then realizing it was fiberglass and getting extremely confused. <laughs> I saw a wonderful thing of a guy sitting down with a tourist guide and, and a sandwich, and, and the whole thing buckled underneath his backside and was very, very perturbed, because obviously there was no such monument. <laughs> So, as I said earlier, you know, Hannah feels like she's cursed Kip by loving him, but the curse has somehow moved elsewhere, and it's the, it's the people you don't think about, your attention is not directed to, who suffer. The sort of other tragedy, you know, Kevin's character stands in for all the... Hardy stand in for all the other tragedies of the war that are going on around us. So this this part of the film got very very reappraised in post production. There was a, a huge amount in the movie connected with uh, Hiroshima and the effect of of Hiroshima on Kip's character, on this sense that um, there was a small bomb, the bomb he was disposing, while this big bomb was changing the face of the war and that you know it's it's really you know fiddling while Rome burns as far as he's concerned and there was a sort of whole political dimension to this which somehow when we put it together in the movie just felt like we were special pleading and and it felt much too didactic and Saul's aunt who you know is an extreme is a veteran in every sense had been in Italy at the end of the war as a young uh, member of the United States forces, he was in the in the navy, and he'd been off the coast of Italy. And he said that when the news of of Hiroshima broke out, people didn't interpret it quite so quickly as as a cataclysmic event in history. They just thought that it was a ticket home. And so the idea that any character could analyze the implications of the war so quickly uh, seemed to be piercing the skin of the real history to try and. Uh, have the benefit of hindsight. So we had to dismantle this whole element at the end of the film of Kip's reaction to Hiroshima and just make it a personal story. And because you knew the elements of the personal story and, and therefore it didn't seem, as I said, like special pleading. Mary tells me about you and Hannah. Hiding Hannah was never in this scene. 
This scene was originally shot to contain only the English patient and Caravaggio. The truth of what happened to the Cliftons, the truth of who the English patient is, comes out. And then, then it occurred to me and the, the team very late on that we were telling a story about a, a, a man who, who reveals what happened to him to a nurse, but in fact never actually did reveal it. And so by borrowing some shots from earlier in the film and actually taking uh, Kip out of a scene that he was in with Hannah and using some of the images of Hannah, we were able to include her in the revelation so that we'd set up a dynamic which was man speaks to nurse and we had to deliver it. And without that payoff, it felt as if um, the film had not delivered itself, even though in the novel and in the screenplay it was only to Caravaggio that the English patient confessed, particularly as it's later that, that Hannah is the person who delivers the English patient from his his trial. So this shot was never anything to do with her listening, it was to do with Kip. But because, again, you know, the, the nature of the audience's reaction to film images is to connect them, if you see an expression and you cut to something else and you connect those two images, it's the sort of basis of all the early editing demonstrations is that... Um, if somebody tells a joke and you cut to somebody else laughing, you assume they're laughing at the joke. So Hannah's reactions here, which were originally to Kip's explication about Hiroshima, became her reaction to the English patient's story um, and Caravaggio's interrogation. For thousands of people could have died. Thousands of people did die. Just different people. Yes. Like Maddox? What? You know, he shot himself. Your partner when he found out you were a spy. I mean, this is a sort of Perry Mason scene, you know, where, where finally um, we hear what really happened. It's a sort of required sequence in the film, and it was actually the most torturous to get right because the minute it feels too much like, uh, um, you know, a conventional detective story, the, the more the film seemed not to be able to tolerate it. So, again, it tries to use time cuts and geography cuts to, to keep it within the spirit of the film and the film's particular sensibility. I'll leave the plane in Kufra Oasis. So if you need it. And we're also collapsing a whole part of the narrative that if we did it in real time and showed the events in a linear way, we'd have been stuck here uh, and you would have been stuck here watching for even longer than we asked you to. I have to teach myself not to read too much into everything. It comes with too long having to read so much into hardly anything at all. Goodbye, my friend. Allah ma'akya, Habibi. There is no God. The one scene I kept to the very end of the writing was a scene in Dorset, uh, where Maddox learns of uh, the events of the, of the story of... of uh, Catherine's death and Jeffrey Clifton's death and uh, it was all about a wisteria tree and I just thought it was the best bit of writing in the film and we clung to it, I researched it, I scouted the wisteria tree we found the house, there was a wisteria tree in Downshire Hill and Hampstead where I live and I always used to look at it in its, in its sort of wonder every spring and I wanted to get something like that into this movie it was such a sort of English obsession with gardening um, and I hung on and hung on, and then the, it was the last sequence in England that we cut, so we never did go to Dorset. <laughs> and you didn't kill the Cliftons? Poor Ray, five hours a day in that sort of suit, that awful prosthetic suit he had to wear. 
And there's Hannah again, actually not looking down through the floor at, at the English Potion, but looking up at, at Naveen. Uh, but somehow we managed to to um, to pull this strange architecture off and geography off, and and we all feel when I'm looking at it now, it seems much more seamless than it did when we first tried to put it together. And I suppose this is the sort of heart now of the story, this this event in the desert where um, Jeffrey tries to, to murder Amashi with the plane. Very, very hard to shoot. A lot of different experts involved in creating this, a half-sized version of the plane, uh, a lot of miniature work, a lot of dangerous work on the ground because the plane got very close to everybody. This is me hanging onto a piece of yellow fuselage with John on a Land Rover shooting the point of view of Jeffrey through to uh, Almashi. That's a, the miniature plane, a half-sized plane. That's a bit of scrap plane. It's all, again, it's the, it's the poor man's process here. Very difficult sequence and very thrilling to do and and uh, when you're shooting you don't know what you're getting because it, all the elements are being you know collected separately and Catherine, what are you doing here can't get out this was very hard for chris and i'm sure to sort of go into a piece of fiction which at this moment collided with some historical facts in her life and physically difficult for rafe because he'd wrenched his back I think the, you know two or three days earlier and then he had to pull her out of this this plane and uh, it was you know this this film is this odd mixture of the conjured reality and a reality and the reality is that people are carrying bodies are stuck in these spaces and Kristen suffers from vertigo and we had to get her up into this mountain and and along these very perilous ledges and she couldn't bear it here she was so nervous, and I think in a couple of shots, it's my wife, Carolyn, um, with a blonde wig standing in for her, or being carried by Rafe. This is Kristen, I think, but I think some of the longer shots are, are Rafe carrying my wife. And uh, But the focus here was awful because the ground was very hard to measure it. We're often on quite long lenses, and it was a, and Rafe's back's killing him. Kristen's vertiginous. We're tired, it's the end of the shoot. I'm dragging my stupid ankle around with me. And by the same token, we know that we have this enormous obligation now to deliver what the movie has been obsessed with, the story of what happened to these two characters and what the implications of what happened to them were for them both. And, and it's the romance of the film, you know, in, in one shot. I remember Anne Roth standing with me and saying, you better deliver this because everybody's been waiting for it. And there's no, so no pressure <laughs> at all. And these are very, very, this is a very dangerous location and there was a tiny, narrow strip for them to walk along. And so so what happens often is that, is that the contingent elements, you know, the sort of practicalities of the day get in the way of 
the, the the images that you're trying to create, which have to last way beyond the day of filming. And it's the, it's also the truth of filmmaking is that you're collecting images which you hope will last forever, but you have to collect them on a particular day, irrespective of the weather, irrespective of everybody's physical condition, irrespective of what you shot the day before, often completely out of sequence. And it's an odd thing that finally, when you go away from the practicalities of film, as long as your intentions are correct and your purpose is correct, somehow the film glues itself back together again in the way that you intended. But at the time, it often feels like for all your preparation, for all the care that you've had and the number of drafts that you've written, that you're just throwing it away in the chaos of a particular day and a particular time, and it's not what you hoped for. But the mess dissolves, the crew dissolves, all the apparatus dissolves, and you just end up with the intention again somehow. And that's all always good, and, and sometimes it can be bad as well. It means that your intention is exposed, and if it's not focused, if it's not correct, then no amount of glitz and no amount of beautiful camera work or beautiful costumes or beautiful actors will disguise the, the fuzziness of your intention. Particular hymns, and I know exactly where I want to be buried. I think we're coming up to the thousandth slate, the thousandth shot of the film. I remember I've got somewhere a Polaroid of a very weary-looking Rafe and Kristen and me in a Polaroid with shot thousand written on it, and I, that's one of the very few things I have looked at since I made the film. I think it's in my copy of Herodotus. I never leave you. You have plenty of water and um, food. I'll open them for you. A great deal of discussion about the nature of decomposition, <laughs> um, how long you could stay in a cave. You know, in the book, it's very, very nebulous. I remember whenever I asked Michael to tell me a story from, you know, the, what the story of the, of the story was, he always got very uh, defensive. And I think, essentially, he's not interested in, in a sort of social realist version of the English patient. It was always a poem. He was a poet. He is a poet. And it's a book of which whose who's gestures and architectures are poetic rather than naturalistic. But film is belligerently invested in storytelling and, and, and in quite conventional storytelling. You know, the audience wants to feel it's in safe hands. And a lot of debate as we're in prep about how long could you stay in a cave. And I, I wrote in a whole sequence where they find a preserved fox that could have been in there for 100 years to suggest that the temperature and humidity characteristics of this cave would mean that you would stay exactly as you were when you came in because we obviously didn't want to for him when he comes back for Kristen to be taking out this sort of mummified decomposed desiccated body and but again what preoccupies you in pre-production often doesn't doesn't preoccupy the audience who are just you know you hope are swept away by the emotional logic and not by the biological logics this is a shot in uh, Tunisia, these incredible salt lakes that give off um, incredible, the, 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 the sort of burning heat just sort of flickers and dances around the horizon. Grabbing, these are images grabbed when we're shooting, shooting something else completely, and I just saw the sun setting on another June, and we all ran around and just got that one silhouette shot trying to collect images of this walk. And the problem with anything which is finally is of paramount importance, these, there's these big shots of desert and 
um, and landscape are always the things which get relegated when you're shooting because they don't involve dialogue or actors and set pieces and so you're always you know you you grab them and then they become often the core material of the film the thing that people remember these just these um these large walks. I, we shot this movie in 185, which is sort of, sort of standard format on 35mm, but actually and now I'm looking at thinking, why on earth didn't we shoot it anamorphic? And it so cries out um, to have a, a slightly different aspect ratio. It's, it's much squarer. Maybe it's this transfer, but it just seems very square now to me, or maybe it's because I'm just come off an anamorphic ratio and it's just so much more pleasing. Hey, golly, where have you come from, then? There's been an accident. I need a doctor. Some of these, you know, parts of 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 Chinich are so exquisite. These these little walled towns. I need morphine. Where's your paper, sir? fantastically strong backgrounds and this is the sort of background that I tend to gravitate towards where there's sort of monochromatic elements behind because their heads just all pop in a very different way from but the, you know as I said I try to use the the complex surfaces of some of the interiors um, in in uh, the Cairo interiors to to talk about the argument sort of intellectual arguments that are going on inside these characters here you want you're sort of going for a much more epic look and then the monochrome backgrounds seem to to push the faces out too much better <laughs> you mind spelling that look listen to me will you what nationality would that be a woman is dying my wife is dying i have been walking i have been walking this is the sort of tumultuous part of rafe it's just feeling like he could any minute go just not contain himself anymore. It's just so, so they're just, you can go to two or three moments in the film and just see this character at the end of himself, at the end of who he is and who he knows. And it's that veracity that gives the film its, its strength, I think. I mean, it, it's, it's true of all three of these principles of Juliette, of Rafe and, and Kristen. It's just so much give and so much of themselves on display here. This tiny fragment of a lullaby was Marta's warm-up in the studio. I was trying to get her to to sing some other things, and I said, well, just let's warm up and get your voice ready, because she was quite nervous of doing the recording, and she sang this little Hungarian lullaby. And again, you know, be careful of what you throw away when you're recording or shooting, because that idea of that lullaby um, became hugely important subsequently, and it's often when you sort of... You're scouring around the edges of what you shot and what you've got and what you recorded that you get the heart of the heart of the movie. It's never where you think it's going to be. This very, very this this maneuvering this car through this tiny street was was a nightmare because there was nowhere to turn the vehicle around and we had to have a specialist driver because there was only this Duncan who was our driving, who was our sort of car specialist. But going through that, there was about an inch on either side of that tunnel. This is a pretend train. It's actually just a truck that Richard Conway made with some smoke coming out of it. But again, we're far enough away to sell that. And, you know, it, it is a, a lesson to me watching it back again, how much we got away with because of the goodwill of an audience, but also because of the ingenuity of the crew of of making a little go a very, very long way for us. Sarge! Sarge! 
this was a difficult day for this is again the day after the um we're shooting this in Italy in a siding the day after I broke my ankle the first thing we shot in the morning and Rafe had some terrible reaction to his to the English patient's uh, burns makeup and it was the first time he hadn't worn it for sort of several days and uh, his skin just came out in this terrible terrible ab reaction and so he was in sort of hives during all of this and and I guess you know we all we all use the discomfort I mean the the so he used it for his tension I used my ankle for my attention concentration but he's going at this guy with all the relish of somebody who's extremely disgruntled with life you can see this guy's face going bright red I was terrified that he'd actually done him damage It's very hard to communicate to an audience, and there's no reason to communicate, I suppose. It doesn't make the film any better. Just what it means to um, to make a movie of this scale over such a long period of time, it's just um, it's as much to do with stamina as it's to do with inspiration or uh, aesthetic. It's just can you hang on and get through the the privations of, of energy and, and discomfort and temperature that a movie like this inevitably engages you in. And that's why you so rely on a good team and good team spirit to just get you through and get you through the bad days. And even that little sequence there, you know, was the one time we had a really serious neg scratch and that, that sort of confection of a, um, of a train, not, not a real train, um, and the stunt of him jumping off all that was so hard to do and then we ended up with a huge scratch, negative scratch right through the middle of it and we'd already moved and getting, fixing it was just a nightmare. And you'd never get back to the cave? I did get back. I kept my promise. I was assisted by the journalist. Again, this is all post-production writing to just simplify the storytelling, and I can't even remember what we were simplifying now, or how many scenes this collapsed, but this is all written in post, his voice over here. It's odd. Film film storytelling is, is still entirely mysterious to me because audiences are are both collectively more intelligent than you can ever imagine, particularly in terms of emotional developments. They just know everything way before you think they could possibly know, and they make connections way before you possibly think they could. And yet, in other matters, uh, they 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 we all as audiences require hard facts, and so often the, the process of of editing is about removing what seem to be, you know, narrative, skeletal narrative ideas, you know, bone that you think without which the limbs simply could not um, operate. And by the same token, adding in what seems to be so present, you know, in the image, and but adding chapter and verse and mascaring every bit of information because without it, the audience can't get its bearings. And so it's a strange mixture of explaining some things more than you can ever imagine were required and then not explaining some things which you imagine were essential for the understanding and appreciation 
of the film. And this is the, the magic of, of, of post-production because you discover what you need to tell the audience and what you need to withhold from them because there's pleasure in connect, making connection, which if you, if you do it for the audience, they, they don't get the pleasure themselves of making their own film. creating their own, you know, series of interrelated ideas and thematic ideas. It's the patient and Hardy. They're everything that's good about England. I couldn't even say what that was. We didn't exchange two personal words. And we'd been together through some terrible things. Some terrible things. He was engaged to a girl in the village. I mean... And us. This, this again is the, you know, the story of Hardy, which, for when I was writing, seemed to me to be a very important one. It just gets relegated really to a reference in this scene, but it, it, it again just indicates the fact that my own instinct is to disperse the narrative and and um, to talk about the fact that in I don't even know what I'm talking about. In this war, many strange associations, many types of love many types of connection. And it's also about the point in the film where forgiveness is the issue and reconciliation. It's just making peace with everything. Everybody making peace with their futures or, or with their pasts. And part of that sequence with Hannah and Kip there is about letting go of each other because in some ways they've served their purpose for each other, just as in the telling of the story, the English patient's character is exhausted all reason to continue, that it's until he can make peace with himself, he can't die. He should have died probably long ago. But until he's said the words and, and confessed, he can't make peace with himself. It is a sort of extended confessional in that regard. So now it's the point of, of surrender and, and letting go and moving on. It is a, a um, like an opera in a way, the film. It's got these arias and these sort of mythic elements. They don't really stand up to too much naturalistic scrutiny. You know, Puccini was one of the references that Gabriel and I had when we were putting the score together and talking about what the score would comprise. And the, the, the theme that gets its, its biggest uh, articulation in the exit from the cave is like a Turandot or something else, you know, and un unashamedly so. I, I think that the, you know, the cinema in Britain and, and often in America is so ashamed of emotion and also feels like it's not hip. But I, I know for myself that, that fiction is, is cathartic and does exist for us and able to project ourselves into and, and um, empathize and the tragedy, which is a word I was never allowed to use in the press you know, when we were doing publicity, the, the, the marketing people kept saying to me, please don't say it's a tragedy, audiences don't like tragedies. But in fact, of course, I think audiences are desperate for tragedy and for the catharsis and release of, of tragedy. And that um, weeping when it's justified, you know, when, when you have committed to some people and their circumstances and their impossible circumstances is the most releasing... Um, and in, you know, laughter and tears, those are the two things that you want to, to earn 
in a film because of the two most useful even you know, if if fiction is a kind of gymnasium for the emotions you know then then let's try and work them all out if we can and work out the tears and work out the laughter i think what it is is that we resist the feeling of being manipulated and so you have to work very hard to to, to feel like you've earned you can get tears probably more easily than you can get laughter in a film and you just have to make damn sure that that they they aren't and they're real The studios who were interested in the film really wanted me to deliver something like a happy ending and kept saying, why can't you just hop on the back of his motorbike? You know, why, what would it damage? But the point is that the reality of this war is that, that the connections that were made during the time of war did not continue often in the times of peace, and suddenly you'd have a Canadian nurse and a Sikh sapper looking at each other in some country where neither of them really belong. And that it, again, it felt like cheating to me to simplify the ending Hannah's piece is that he didn't die and the English patient's piece is that he can die. We played the Goldberg variation throughout the filming of this. Um, it, the bark is very important to me and Hannah plays from bark in the film and we wanted to play the aria and then I realised that, that we needed to pull this piano into the score. So we, we still used piano, but Gabriel wrote this beautiful piece, which, it, you know, pays reference to Bach and to the austerity of, of Bach's music, but which has pulled some of the thematic ideas of the film together. And it's very delicate, I think, and doesn't tell you what you're supposed to feel. It's not, it's not the sort of decorative music that gets used in film, you know, where... Um, it swells to make us feel emotion. It, in some ways, it resists telling us what the emotional timbre of the film is. <laughs> Read to me, will you? The release of Hannah here, of course, is is the tension to the English patient's own calm. So she, in a way, she does the feeling for him here. And language is the thing he asks for. He wants, he wants the literature in this moment. My darling. And again, this is a sort of gesture which pulls the two bits of the film together because it's Hannah's voice but Catherine's letter. And so you can, you can, you know, cut between these two geographies and two time sequences and create something which you hope the, the whole of, of which is much greater than any particular element. So it's that we're beginning to hear now Catherine's voice. I really ought to drag myself outside, but then there'd be the sun. But it's articulated through Hannah's reading. And the paintings and on writing these words. We die. We die. I actually shot this with Kristen in the bed next to Rafe at a certain point because I had a whole idea about revealing her in the room because she was such a presence. But again, that was too literal an incarnation of a metaphorical idea and just seemed crazy when we actually got it into the 
into the film, but its presence is in it because her presence is in the room literally, and and so she's conjured somehow. And Hannah's reading with the complication of having a character who's not in the scene present. Where the real country is, not the boundaries drawn on maps. And and you know, unashamedly, the manifesto of the film is contained in this note, and I wanted it to be. And um, it's the thing that most struck me about the book. I know you'll come and carry me out into the Palace of Winds. That's all I've wanted. I mean, it's unashamedly uh, um, lyrical writing, and you're either in the market for it or you're not. I certainly was, and I certainly believe that even if the stuff of film writing is not what people say to each other, or certainly the job of the dramatist is to dramatise, is to dramatise a crash, to write a crash, to write a, an effect, to write a physical gesture, it doesn't mean that words are not valuable. And there's a great uh, investment in language here as another tool of the, the film writer's art and the filmmaker's art. But the, the music is the restraint of the music here is what I think gives you the release of the emotion. It's the reverse of what you're supposed to do. It backs off of the emotion, and then and then the characters fill it up. But now, having got through that part, then the music can let go. And I always think that the job of a great score is that as soon as you hear the music, you remember the film and all the scores I've loved. That's been the case, that, um, that you say the name of the film to yourself and you can hear the music. And again, the book was the thing, and so the book is the thing that she takes with her because the whole story of the film is contained within it. And I love that empty shot of the room. I remember that feeling when we did it. It was the last shot we did in there, and it felt like this. We'd been there and we'd taken the film, and then we left the monastery. She'll take you as far as and I wanted this idea, I had very early on when I was writing, this idea of the striating light, that somehow that the emotion would be in the play of light on her face. And so these, when I was scouting in these cypress trees, created this sort of zebra crossing of light. And you just see it now going in and out of the trees. That that would tell us, you know, in a sort of mysterious way, the past and the present colliding. And this face of this child, I remember somebody saying, who is that child? And I said, well, it's just it's about innocence and it's about returning to the world. You know, you've been out of the world, now you return to it. And her face somehow caught in those shafts of light, Juliet's face, would say that that was the appeasement, that was the future. And then now we get this big, fat, brilliant theme very complicated crane shot in the studio in Chinichitara and then using a, a plate from the desert. And then this light play. And I don't know why that shot says optimism, but it just does. But, oh, it did to me anyway. I felt that was the, the antidote to all the pain. And then with this very strange thing of this completely dissonant uh, piece of music, this this uh, lullaby going against the the piano. Mm -hmm. 
different keys, different tonalities, different scales, but again, just a, a, a strange alchemy. And, you know, it's a lot of every filmmaker when they try and make gold that uh, sometimes they've just made uh, some much baser substance. But in this case, I think that uh, we were able to create something that found an audience that, you know, we either deserved or we didn't, but we could never possibly hope for. keep talking through the credits because it will remind me that so many people have gone by I haven't discussed the wonderful Emma Schofield Lynn Kamen, Sandy's wife all of the sort of hundreds of people who go towards making a film Fabrizio Sforza's a fantastic guy and there's Henson's uh, credit for prosthetics now I feel like I'm doing a football commentary. Gary Jones, who works with Anne Roth, a tremendous collaborator, came back on Ripley with me. And also all the places I went to, uh, to cast, Canada, Germany, Italy. Diane Dreyer, just there going by, who's my great collaborator, has been on every movie with me. And um, thank you, Sarah Ewing, who helped me so much in this film. Phil Bray and Larry Kaplan, who've been with me ever, ever since, great photographer and unit publicist. And, Darren Seal, who's the video playback on this, a young kid, became the second unit director on Cold Mountain, has got a big directing career ahead of him himself. And just, it goes on and on, you know, the number of people. It's always a, it, for audiences, it's a pain in the neck, I think, when they have to sit through the sort of hour of credits that happens at the end of a movie. But for all of us who make films, it's just a reminder of the degree of collaboration that's involved to get a single image onto the screen. It's just a mystery that... On the one hand, all that matters is what's going on in an actor's face, and that's the simplest engineering in the world. It's a face and a lens in front of it. You're behind watching, and somebody's giving you something in front of the camera, and yet often behind that dialogue between the director and the actor, there could be you know, 500, 600, 700 people who've had to work to get that duet to, to operate. So I'm actually going to stop talking now. That's quite enough of me. Thank you.